turns around, goes into the into the master bedroom and finds that Kaz's laptop is there and still open and alive, logged into Alpha Bay. Kaz is arrested. He's taken to Thai jail, essentially. He agrees to extradition, and then a week after his arrest, he's found dead in his jail cell. Alleged suicide. Right, yeah. So... to that yet yeah well enjoy not relating to that while you can (laughs) i will i will i'm not in a hurry yet but listen we got a lot to talk about you have been busy working away on your latest book that is coming out on november 15th so it will we're recording right before then this will have come out when the episode's on so link is in the description check it out it's called tracers in the dark fantastic book thank you but we had gotten to touch on it last time just like mentioned you were working on it but you wanted to save some of the conversation for when it was coming out and i gotta tell you i think that was a really good idea because i was under the impression a lot of it was going to come back to just the silk road but you went so far beyond that definitely i mean the silk road was the beginning of the story but um truly it it is a decade-long story that starts with the Silk Road and, and ends, you know, in a place that is, you know, with about dark web sites that are 10 times the size of the Silk Road, among yeah. other things. Yeah. Yeah. And for people out there who just aren't familiar, can you briefly just explain what the Silk Road was? And then we'll we'll get into it for sure. But yeah, for sure. I mean, the, um, the Silk Road, and tell me if we should break down this down even further. The Silk Road was a dark web drug website. Um, where a, a dark web drug market where you could essentially log on with this anonymity software called Tor, the Tor browser. Silk Road itself ran as a website that used Tor to make it, it impossible for anybody to figure out where it was hosted and who ran it. And it was essentially like this dark web eBay for all sorts of contraband, but mainly drugs. It was essentially like a an online bizarre, uh, like a market for every drug imaginable uh, that grew into, by 2013, a massive um, operation where like hundreds of millions of dollars in drugs were were being transacted all the time. Yeah. And when you think about it, it was part of the, a huge part of the story was the fact that they you had to use Bitcoin to do the actual transactions. And this was the earliest days of cryptocurrency period but bitcoin as well because 2011 bitcoin came out in 2009 so it was much cheaper and far less known and this website in a lot of ways people say legitimized it totally i mean should i talk about like how i like started absolutely getting into- <clears throat> let's get to yeah, the, the start of it yeah i i first well i guess around this this time you're, you're referencing like 2010 2011 i was working on a, a book that we talked about last time um that was really like partially at least about the cypherpunk movement this this social movement very interesting group of mostly dudes i should say um who i was going to say guys and but it is mostly men who believed that they could use encryption uh and this started i'm really talking about like a group that began in the 1990s mm. they believed that they could use encryption technologies like secrecy tools like the ability to encrypt information so that even the government couldn't crack it to take power away from like 
federal governments and corporations and give it to individuals. So mostly and, like radical libertarian types. Exactly. Yeah. And definitely th this group like gave rise to what we now use as like VPNs mm. and uh, Tor, which I just talked about. And also um, WikiLeaks is like a, a, you know, and the whole idea of granting anonymity, but actually guaranteeing it for journalistic sources and leakers using these tools that Julian Assange came up with. He was a cypherpunk too. That came out of the cypherpunk movement. And so as I was like kind of getting like really obsessed with this group for a different book that I was writing, um, I, I came upon what seemed to be this new cypherpunk invention. It was described to me that way. Um, uh, Bitcoin. The, this guy, Gavin Andreessen, who was one of the first oh, yeah. Bitcoin yeah. developers, programmers, uh, gave this kind of TED-style talk that I watched on YouTube at the time um, where he describes Bitcoin as basically like cypherpunk money, like a, a kind of digital cash for the internet uh, that, among other things, like could be sent anonymously to anyone in the world um, mm. that it, it's, you know, appeared to be this kind of cypherpunk holy grail thing that they've been, this movement I've been trying to achieve for a long time without success, which is like essentially anonymous uh, crypto money. I mean, mm. the word cryptocurrency was like not in uh, common use then. I actually, so when I wrote the first piece, I actually interviewed Gavin Andreessen. I tracked him down. I wrote this piece for Forbes magazine about Bitcoin, which I think was like the first print magazine piece about Bitcoin. Like 2011-ish? In yeah, April of 2011. Okay. And I actually headlined that piece, Cryptocurrency, like thinking I'd come up with this clever <laughs> pun, but like nobody was using that phrase back then. And, I, and Gavin had described Bitcoin to me as untraceable, and I believed it was. And, and even Satoshi Nakamoto, this mysterious creator of bitcoin nobody of course still knows who he or she or they are yeah, yeah. um could be multiple people had described had themselves or himself or whatever uh described bitcoin in this email introducing it to a cryptography mailing list and saying like among its features that participants can be anonymous so it really did seem like even the creator of bitcoin thought this was going to be like a kind of anonymous cash like you could uh, for for the digital world, like you could put, uh, you know, unmarked bills in a briefcase and like send it across the world to anybody without revealing your identity at all, you know, without any identifying information associated with it whatsoever. Um, and that seemed to me to be like, I mean, I, I unfortunately was not interested in, in investing in Bitcoin at the time. In, in April of 2011, um, a Bitcoin was worth a dollar. Uh -huh. And I thought like, oh, you know, as I write this, magazine piece, maybe I should just buy like $40 worth of Bitcoins, like 40 Bitcoins. And uh, unfortunately, like I, I tried this on the... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The only existing cryptocurrency exchange at the time, Mt. Gox, which was very buggy. We'll talk about that for sure. <laughs> and, uh, and it didn't work. I couldn't get the transaction to go through, and I gave up, which was like a, uh, I don't like to think too much about how much that uh, mistake cost me, but I, you know, but, but yikes! What I'm trying to, yeah, it was a mil multi-million dollar uh, 
little snafu. I got sick reading that for you. Yeah. I was no. like, oh. Um, <laughs> yeah, but then, you know, I I wasn't interested in, like, this notion of Bitcoin, as a lot of people see it today, as, like, kind of digital gold, like a way to store your money as an investment. I was interested, and I think a lot of people were back then, in, in the notion that Bitcoin was kind of like this almost subversive mm. sort of digital cash that, like, could be spent without a trace, uh, just like cash can be in, in a drug deal or whatever. And sure enough, like, as you were saying, I mean, just months later, the Silk Road kind of appeared online. I think it actually may have launched in 2010, but nobody really um, was aware of it until 2011. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I like came upon this, this like dark web market that seemed to be offering like all sorts of uh, illegal drugs for sale in Bitcoin. And it kind of confirmed this idea to me that like, yeah, Bitcoin truly is a, um, crypto cash for the internet. And, and it, it evades any attempt at regulation or tracing or law enforcement. Uh, and that's uh, certainly like how the creator of the dark, of this Silk Road saw it, this, another mysterious at the time figure who called himself the Dread Pirate Roberts. Mm -hmm. To be fair, like I, <clears throat> I should say that when I first saw the Silk Road online, I was like, this can't be real. This must be a scam. Like the, this, this, like there's heroin lift, listed for sale here. Like this, this is either like, um, uh, I don't know, uh, like just some sort of uh, pipe dream, like this is not going to really work, or uh, it's it's truly a scam, like somebody's trying to steal people's Bitcoins, of which, you know, there have been a million scams yes, like yes. that. Still and, are, yeah. Yeah. And it was only like a few months later after that, that um, Adrian Chen at Gawker wrote his, wrote the real, like first real piece about the Silk Road. Mm. Um, and he had found people who had done, who had bought like acid off the Silk Road <laughs> and it worked perfectly well. And, um, and kind of, I, I couldn't believe that I'd missed, like, you know, being so obsessed with the cypherpunks, I'd like missed an even bigger story than Bitcoin it seemed at the time. Um, like an actual black market on the dark web transacting in cryptocurrency and selling every drug imaginable. And it was real. Um, I mean, that was, I, yeah, another regret, but, but, um, you tested it out though. Well, sure. I mean, certainly like, at that stuff. point, <laughs> at that point I, um, I was like fully like, uh, well, I was in fact trying to figure out like, how can I get the next big story about the Silk Road? Um, as it grew into like a massive phenomenon and as you know, that when the Gawker piece came out that Adrian wrote, um, Chuck Schumer and I forget oh, Joe Manchin, right. yeah. I think like mm -hmm. held a press conference even to say like, this is, uh, you know, we condemn this, uh, horrible website that, you know, is represents like a new chapter in the war on drugs and is powered by untraceable cryptocurrency. You know, it was, uh, a massive controversy immediately and they called on the dea to to shut this site down you know yeah and and that was like that was towards the beginning but what obviously bitcoin was worth a lot less but in the first year there they were already doing tens of millions of dollars of revenue on that no absolutely i mean <clears throat> the thing about like um the the uh exchange rate of bitcoin goes up goes down but the actual uh, sort of economy of buying and selling things in bitcoins um like the drugs didn't change in value mm -hmm. so like um 
anybody who was buying heroin on the Silk Road or acid or whatever in 2011, that was turned out to be very expensive acid for them <laughs> because they, if you spent like whatever, when when Bitcoin was worth a dollar and you were buying um, whatever 50 bucks worth of <laughs> weed or something, that turned out to be like millions of dollars yeah. worth in, in future money. But you know, nobody could have known that at the time, and um, and it really was working and. Absolutely, not immediately, but very soon, like the Silk Road was doing hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of transactions a day. Now, how would it work? Because you have you have a dark web market, so it's not like you have a government backstop regulator here. This is all obviously completely under the table. They have to access it on Tor, as you said, and use Bitcoin to transact. But if I went on there, as you did, and, and it might be helpful to talk about like your experience when you did buy some stuff on behalf of Forbes and everything. But certainly like yeah. only on behalf of Forbes. Only yeah, on behalf just of Forbes. Just as an experiment. Of did course. not use any of the drugs. Yeah. Let's be clear about that. But still when you would make the purchase, my understanding is that the money wouldn't go straight away to the seller. They'd put it in like an escrow thing so that the the transaction would have to be confirmed on your end. Like you had to receive it and then tell the site like, oh I got it. Now they can give the money over. Yeah. I mean the the Silk Road was really a brilliant invention. I mean, people like look back on it and see flaws in it, but it was, but um, the Dread Pirate Roberts who ran this thing really did come up with some serious innovations. Yeah. Just there were there were almost like, um, like financial innovation even more than like technological. So, um, yeah, there there was an escrow where when you buy drugs, uh, your money is put into escrow and then it's only released once you receive the drugs in the mail. Something that nobody really would have, I, I would have never thought that that was possible to ship drugs in the mail in this, in these quantities and that it would not all be caught, but it worked. And it was, yeah. and the dealers, like the vendors who were, you know, third parties, like the Dread Pirate Roberts is sitting in the middle as this administrator of the market. He's the market maker, but then like the buyers and sellers are acting independently. And these dealers started to like really come up with clever ways to hide the drugs in the, in shipping it and, there was an entire user forum where people discussed like the best ways to like, uh, you know, um, obfuscate the drugs that you were sending in the mail. Um, yeah, there were a lot of good ways to do that. I remember college. That was some wild <laughs> shit people would do. Yeah, and and um, you know, like, the, I mean, the clever things like uh, you know, you're sending like psychedelic mushrooms in the mail, and and you put it inside of a, a like a fake beef stroganoff package yeah. that looks like the dried mushrooms on the side of, of the uh whatever i mean th there were just an endless number of these things but then also just like triple sealing and then mylar and whatever mm -hmm. so but that all worked incredibly well but but then yeah so then uh once you receive the drugs in the mail you confirm that you got it that only then is the money in the escrow released to the seller so they can't scam you then there's like ratings and reviews which in the which in the drug world is actually like really important you can you know the the quality of these drugs can be assessed in a way that right. was never possible with you know just like buying random drugs from some dude in the bathroom of a club or something yeah, you know yeah. um it was a real it, it was a real innovation um and not like you know i i would never claim that it uh, it's it was absolutely a criminal operation but it mm -hmm. but it was also um it's really important to to get this across that like the Dread Pirate Roberts was a political figure. Yes. He saw the Silk Road as a, a political experiment first, at least. Like, that was his first conception of it. I do believe that. Like, he he was this radical libertarian. He wanted with the Silk Road to um, 
to just show that it was going to be possible in this new era of uh, this kind of cyberpunk utopia that he foresaw to just like buy and sell things without any participation from the government, no taxation, no restrictions. Anybody can buy and sell anything uh, and put into their bodies whatever they choose to, you know. So um, he really, I think, wanted to take the violence out of the drug trade, among other things. Yeah, he was very he, – he thought the war on drugs was a total disaster and that this was the one-stop shop to fix it. And And I think when you look through the – catalogs now of all his online correspondence behind the names it's it's pretty clear that to me and we're talking we're talking about dpr who ended up being ross ulbrich we'll, we'll talk about how that went down and everything but ross was a guy who i think from behind the keyboard started to feel the power of the movement itself and let that affect his actions because he wasn't a guy this was not a guy out there buying lamborghinis or anything like that he lived Absolutely. a very simple life he wasn't he wasn't this like just doing it for his own fame type guy but the movement the political ideology of radical libertarianism in this case really overtook him and drove an incredible innovation but also led him to slip up and get caught i th i would say i mean i feel bad saying this because just like just to set the context here, Ross Ulbricht is like serving life in in prison yes. now, and no parole. without parole, two life sentences, I think. And mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, he is in a a vulnerable position. He can't truly like speak for himself. But I do think it's so. I feel bad like saying um, critical things about him, but just you have to tell this story properly. I think that he was eventually. We'll get to this, I guess, kind yes. of corrupted in his ideals. And I think eventually he was not just doing stuff out of um, libertarian and idealistic motivation. He was he had become uh, sort of enamored of the power and the millions of dollars flowing like through, you know, around his invention mm -hmm. and did some, you know, nasty things to try to protect that. But but it, it definitely there's no question that. It started from a, a, a place of, of idealism, and he uh, had rules for the Silk Road that you could only buy and sell things that he considered to be victimless crimes. You know, there was no child pornography, child what we now call like child sexual abuse materials. There were there was no murder for hire, although that's a story that the media has told endlessly. Uh, the Silk Road did not have like assassination services for sale. There were at some points weapons for sale. I mean, uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts believed. I think that like, you know, guns can be used for self-defense and but there were limits in that he had, he like disallowed any weapon that could be used on like large groups of people for instance. Like he didn't mm -hmm. I think once obviously to become like a, a a hub for terrorism. Um and eventually he shut down even the gun sales because it wasn't really working very well. I think it's a lot harder to send a gun through the mail. Yeah, I could imagine. I feel like that yeah. one they they can find through metal metal detectors pretty easy. Right. But but there were you know this this notion of like victimless crime um, was real on the Silk Road. There were hacking tools that were sold eventually, um, but the rules were that those were not supposed to be sold. And it, I the eventually the government pointed to those um, as examples of like you know exceptions to this victimless crime rule. Mm. And I don't really know what, how that happened. I think that in, in part the site just grew so big that, um, or I don't know. I mean. Even that is like selling hacking tools was a, a very small part of the Silk mm. Road's business. 
And for a very long time, like <clears throat> even the drug sales, it's important to point out um, most of it was not like heroin, right? Uh, was not cocaine even. It was like mushrooms, it was acid, a lot of ecstasy. Yeah, ecstasy, ecstasy was like a major product on there, in part because. The quality of it could be guaranteed, which is always like I, you know, I think been a challenge with mm -hmm. MDMA. So um, there was like a when when you looked at the Silk Road in 2011, 2012, it really did seem like a super interesting and ethically complicated place. You know, like um, not just a not a drug cartel or a criminal operation. You know, in a simple way like that. Definitely violating all international law for sure. But and people bought heroin and died from yes. the Silk Road. It there's no doubt that it it expanded the drug trade probably in ways that like um there were stories of people who had gone clean but then and then moved someplace where like drugs were not very accessible, but then when they saw the Silk Road mm. they couldn't resist the temptation. Yeah. And you know, uh like you know, drugs are uh morally complicated yes they but are. um but but i i just always want to like uh tell the story of the silk road in this way that doesn't just make it sound like um uh like R ross ulbricht like the dread pirate roberts was scarface or something yeah, yeah so my my stance on this and you and i have talked about this before a little bit off air but and i've talked about on some other podcasts back in the day earlier on when we were doing these i, I think there were two podcasts in particular where it got covered a bunch but you know when people were talking about like the pardon with Ross because his sentence was insane, what he was given. His, his crime did not fit the sentence at all. But when people are talking about pardon, I've always backed off that and said, listen, I don't think the guy's necessarily a bad guy. And I, I think there's a lot of amazing innovation he had. But you can't violate every international law on drugs and some other things and not be punished for that. But I, I've always – Therefore, looked at like commutation as as a route with with his sentence, which we'll see what happens there. But you know, I don't think that I think the world can get really complicated, and you can see people innovate ahead of where governments are, and perhaps then not perhaps in this case, hundred percent inject their political ideology into it in a way that's radical. Let's call it what it is. But I also think that. The way that they painted him out to be was far beyond the scope of what he was. For one thing, I feel pretty confident based on the evidence that he was in over his head pretty quickly and that it's very, very – to me, I, I fully believe, but I think from an evidence perspective, it is, it is very easy to make the case, at least I'll say, that there were multiple Dread Pirate Roberts, multiple people using that account. And so there's no doubt that some of the correspondence that happened on that account from behind the keyboard online was questionable to say the least and morally awful in, in some cases as, as it got to with calling hits on people and things like that. But I think it – I think things do change when you're doing things online. It doesn't make anything right, but to me – just looking at it from a humanity perspective, I mean we see people on Twitter, right? People on Twitter will say things that you can meet these people in person and then they're like kind of nice or like they're not like that or they never say it like that. And it's just this thing where you feel real confident behind a keyboard being able to say do this or I think this or I think that. And 
there's definitely a part of me that thinks a lot of that happened with with Ross and even some of the other guys who were operating behind that keyboard there to where if some of the other guys were were putting hits on people or whatever and some people have accused Ross of that he's denied that a lot and the government did not bring those charges at trial but you know if if that were the case I, I don't view it as the same capabilities of someone who's sitting here in a room and says, go hit that guy. You know what I mean? There, there's more of an emotional disconnection, and that's also their fault for setting up a system to where that that is possible to happen. Yeah. Well, well let's see. Like, I, <clears throat> uh, I don't know where to begin with this. Like, there's, yeah, like I said, I think Ross was very idealistic. He but he was it's like um and you, you know to your point that he was ahead of his time. I think he it's you know so so many kinds of drugs have been legalized or are about to be legalized that were for sale on the Silk Road. But it's also worth pointing out that Ross wasn't for drug legalization. He didn't want to be you know he didn't want drugs to be legalized and taxed or the Dread Pirate Roberts didn't anyway. I, I should say all like um I I can I just if I could just tell the story yeah, a little please, bit. Yeah, please, please. I I got you really, found yourself into the middle of it. Right. I mean, I, I got really obsessed with the Dread Pirate Roberts. Even beyond the Silk Road, his creation, I wanted to like um, do a piece on this person, the Dread Pirate Roberts, who was this political figure, saw himself as like leading a revolution in the way he was talking to his community on the Silk Road, which had its own user forums. He had a Dread Pirate Roberts book club <laughs> where he was like, you know, recommending like anarcho-capitalist like yeah. philosophy stuff i mean so i i did like bug him for about eight months until he agreed to an interview and that's where he laid out a lot of this political ideology um which when I, was this that was in uh i talked to him on july 4th of 2013 mm. um yeah for like i don't know a long time it was all like done over the silk roads tour protected messaging system he like all text he made me like a um, like a temporary drug dealer on the site, essentially, <laughs> just to be able to have an account to like um, message with him. Directly. How long? How long did it take you to convince him to do that? Because you're doing it all via text, obviously. Yeah. It's not like you're seeing who he is. But how long did that take? It took eight months. Like I, um, <clears throat> I started asking in 2012, I think, and then uh, he, you know, he he didn't, I think, want that kind of um, visibility or um, heat. And then I think what he, was your pitch to him? I'm curious because you find your way to get like in you can see it in your books too with some of the people you get access to, but then look at your career of some of the, some of the publicity between Ross and before that Julian Assange, before anyone who knew knew who Julian Assange was. Like you find your way yeah. into these situations, and people give you the trust to be like, "Yeah, fuck yeah, come in, Andy." Well, <clears throat> I do think that part of it is that Ross's ego was, or the Dread Pirate Roberts, whatever, his ego was growing over time as the Silk Road became bigger and bigger. And right. and as law enforcement continued to chase them in totally in vain, like, um, I think that Ross's hubris as it, you know, became like, you know, one and two and then two and a half years, ultimately, that he was evading law enforcement successfully, he thought that he was untouchable. And what he was doing was so remarkable that I think he want, he started to want attention. But I did, I, this is not actually even in the book, but I, I did do a thing with him eventually where I was like, okay, my editors say now that we're going to do this piece one way or another. If it's not going to be about you, I'm going to do it about your competitor. Site. Because <laughs> at, at that point, there were these sort of copycat dark web markets yeah. and um, they were part of the story too. I wasn't like lying to him. But I think at that point he was like, well, I can't abide by um, one of these other dark web uh 
administrators getting the credit instead of me. So that's when he actually agreed to do it. And I, I don't know, that feels a little, maybe that's manipulative, but it, but it was true also that like at, at some point, the, this other site, Atlantis, was, uh, had popped up, was like um, gaining some of his market share, a little bit at least. And the administrators of that site had like their own chief marketing officer and stuff. So they were like <laughs> ready to talk anytime. And uh, if he didn't, you know, if he wasn't going to talk, somebody else was going to. So how long did you talk with him on there? Well, I talked with him, like I said, for months off the record. And then, right, but right. then on the we spent like, uh, you know, five hours um, wow. going back and forth. But that's like in part because Tor is really slow. <laughs> and, uh, and also because I think in retrospect that he probably was talking to me while conferring with other people who helped him run the site. Uh, and including possibly, I, you know, I think we differ in our opinions of like, to what degree there were multiple Dread Pirate Roberts, but there was definitely this kind of second in command guy. Yeah, what was his name? Again? He goes by Variety Jones. Yes, that's it. Variety. Jones. I think his real name turned out to be Roger Clark. I believe. I've never. Yeah. I haven't covered his case so closely, but he, he was, was like in. He was in Thailand or something. Was yeah, that it? Yeah. yeah. Um, Thailand comes up again later, but but he um, he I think was not only kind of advising Ross, but also like pushing him to become more of like a hardcore criminal. Um, I've seen ultimately the chats between them the ims um they i don't think that they knew each other's real identities by the way like so many people on the dark web they work together only um through text through tour uh never actually met in person didn't ross know the identity i could be remembering this wrong from nick bilton's book but i feel like ross there was a thing where he made anyone who was going to join on send them his a copy of their driver's license or you something it's a really interesting question like um he definitely did that for for most of the people who worked for him, but now that I think about it, uh, I don't I don't think he did that for Roger Clark. Might for, be true for I, Variety I, Jones. I can't remember. It was this incredible thing that like the, he made the people who worked for him send them uh, <laughs> his their identifying information, and he kept it on his encrypted laptop. You know, thinking um, you know, this was like he had he had full disk encryption on his laptop, so he thought if I just close the lid, law enforcement will never be able to access this. Mm, that's and, the problem. And like that. Uh, but just the fact that it took so long to catch Variety Jones, um, the second-in-command guy, whereas the other people on the site were quite easily identified because their IDs were on his laptop. But we'll get to like that how that laptop yeah. was accessed. Yeah. But like, um, I think that probably he was Variety Jones was just more careful, and he also had like a sort of power over Ross. I mean, you could see in their conversations when they eventually came out in in legal documents uh, that like. He was really influencing Ross in yes. a, a kind of insidious way, and I've you know I've read the conversation where Ross thinks that he's got an employee who has stolen hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of bitcoins from him, and he doesn't know what to do. And uh, Variety Jones, his like little his you know second in command guy, um, Lothario kind of figure, is like I think this guy needs to needs to get killed. That was Curtis Green, right? That's right. And <clears throat> the employee. And Ross, you can see him like hesitating, not wanting to do this. I mean, the whole notion of the Silk Road is that it's going to be a, a, an ex a non-violent, that it actually reduces violence in the drug trade. But he, he, like, you can see him be talked into it by Variety Jones. And I believe, I know, I think you and I like maybe disagree about this. I do believe that, that 
that Ross himself, uh, who I believe was at the very least most of the time he was the Dread Pirate Roberts, that he was persuaded to try to have people killed. Now, I'm not going to put the picture of Curtis Green in the corner because I don't want to get the video demonetized, but people can Google that. Silk Road, Curtis Green, fake murder. There's a picture that is – it will look like a dead body, but he was very much alive. It, it was – there were federal agents who staged the the image itself. I forget what – they used like soup packets or some exactly. shit. Exactly. Like, they used like uh, Campbell's soup like to yes. pr- make it look like he had sort of vomited like during this – torture session exactly i mean it's all really um grisly stuff but all fake like all, all fake. Um, the dea this is like a bizarre story that I, you know this I, I don't tell this story in like incredible detail in the book this book is just telling of tells the, the silk road story as a preamble to what was yes. to come yes. but like um it is a, a an amazing story of like they uh they essentially identified curtis green set him up to be this um this victim of a fake murder the task force did and this is by the way like one task force in baltimore that was going after the dread pirate roberts are you talking about just to be clear are you talking about just the dea part of it right now with baltimore it was just baltimore it was actually like multiple agencies because i was gonna say it was homeland security dea secret service they were all involved i'm not sure about fbi or irs in that in in that in baltimore right and okay that's what i'm there was another team simultaneously tracking DPR chasing Ulbricht, you know, eventually identifying him based out of New York. That was Chris Tarbell. And that's the FBI. Chris Tar- yeah, that's yeah. the FBI, uh, IRS, yeah. IRS criminal investigations. And uh, they had their own Homeland Security guy. Uh, so it's a very complicated, but there were actually two competing teams go a- going after him. Was that the, I'm going to fuck up his name, but Van Dergeman or something? Was he the New York one? And then yeah. there was other well, other Homeland Security people working with Baltimore? Well, that's true. Yeah, I mean, it, it, Jared Duryagin is yeah. the guy's name, and he really was he was based out of Chicago, <laughs> just to complicate things further. But he was working with the New York team, right? Okay. And they were let's like just to simplify it, like they were the 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 more by the book uh, successful, and I would say like kind of like not to be too insulting to like all the people involved in Baltimore, but the more top tier like yeah. Southern District of New York, where that case was prosecuted out of where it was led is always like the one that's doing the big internet cases there i like want to bookmark the, that though because i do want to come back to how they access frosty that's interesting but well the, the yeah. server certainly yeah yeah um, i don't want to get you off curtis green though like, there's so much here we'll, we'll there's this it. there's this baltimore team that was doing much i don't know weirder stuff including faking this murder um and but i don't think like so there was never a real murder um that ross like actually paid for or um but i do you know i do actually believe that he thought that he had had someone murdered i it's 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 a perfectly reasonable opinion to have and i and we've taught you and i have talked about this before like i said off air and so i i respect that because also as people have already heard you were at the middle of this thing while it was going down you were then a main feature in the documentary deep web in 2015 which discussed a lot of this case right when it was finishing up trial but with with Curtis Green, couple things that I would throw out there just as like maybe, but I don't know. First of all, I have always wondered, and I don't even know how technologically possible this is, but you never know with government organizations and what they have access to. I have always wondered if there was any 
correspondence or data edited after the fact. I, that has been a curious thing to me. And secondly, I find it very suspect that Curtis Green himself, the actual guy, Curtis Green, who today is, you know, he, he made a deal to do that whole thing. And I don't even think did time or if he did no, very he short time, yeah. but he's regular citizen doing his thing now. He goes around with Ross Ulbricht's mother, Lynn, and does podcasts and openly discusses how fully, no. He, he fully disagrees. He fully agrees rather with you. He, he yes. says there were multiple Dread Pirates. Um, you know, I, and I, you know, I, I don't know what to make of that. I can say, yeah, maybe, you know, we have to like, the, the chat logs, like some of them were from the, the Silk Road server. Some of them were for Ross Ulbricht's laptop. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, could those have been altered? Uh, I don't know. I say that yeah, totally. It's, I, and it seems unlikely, but possible, I guess. Um, the But the thing is, and this is like what my book is about, is that at Ross Ulbricht's trial, they not only showed that they could trace the Bitcoins from the Silk Road server to Ross Ulbricht's laptop, but they showed money coming out of Ross Ulbricht's laptop that was exactly the amounts and the timing for the hits that he was commissioning. And this yeah. is not the not the Curtis Green murder for hire. Yeah, there were like five or something. But another question. collection of them that followed, um, sort of like going after a scammer who had who had scammed money from the Silk Road and his associates. Um, and in that case, you can see it on the blockchain. And this is like the this is what my book is about. Yes. This is not like um, uh, like this is a an interesting case because it's almost like like, like uh, I I after Ross Ulbricht was busted, and we haven't even talked about how that happened. Yeah, but, we'll, we'll get to um, that in a minute. I attended every minute of his trial in New York, and um, I was as shocked as anybody when there one day of this trial they 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 use Bitcoin tracing as part of the evidence against him. I mean, um, it had start, started to become clear at that point that Bitcoin was not the untraceable digital cash, anonymous, like um, untraceable money that I that I thought it was, that perhaps even people uh, like the cypherpunks and even Satoshi Nakamoto right. thought it was. But this was the first time it ever was used in a courtroom. And uh, they, could sh they could show on the blockchain, and I have looked at this myself. I mean, the blockchain, the amazing thing about it is that it's a public record of every Bitcoin transaction. If you know whose addresses are whose, you can look that up yourself. And I, I did this and I, you know, m matching it with the, uh, what the prosecution has listed as Ross Ulbricht's Bitcoin addresses taken from his laptop, you can see yourself the transactions where he's, he was paying what he thought was a, a hitman. So uh, he actually thought it was like a Hells Angels um, gang member who was going to do these murders for him. How long was his trial approximately? It was very short. I mean, um, well, I don't know. I, I haven't covered that many trials like gavel to gavel, as they say, but it was, I think, uh, three weeks maybe. Okay. So it wasn't like crazy long. But no. one thing that has always sat wrong with me, because again, you would think too, the basis of your book right here, which is that they can trace Bitcoin. We're going to talk a lot about that with these other cases as well today because it's pretty nuts and people need to hear about this. But you would think that in the trial when they're even presenting that as evidence, which I wasn't even I, – I, maybe I was aware at one point, but I didn't even remember that they did that because 
they brought when they announced the charges against Ross and catching him, and maybe we should talk about finally how that happened in a second. But they in the media, they tried him by media. It was going to be a federal courtroom, so no cameras in there. They knew that. They said, "Oh, we're going to charge him with six hits and all this stuff and running this whole site and whatever." And then they get to the trial, and before the trial, they drop all the hits charges. They did not charge him with that, yet they still discussed it in the courtroom, and they quote unquote provided the smoking gun evidence that that he exchanged the proper Bitcoin to have ordered these hits. So why did they not charge him with the hits? That's what makes me go, there's a rat there. Well, I don't really – I don't know why they didn't charge him. I, I can say that they did charge him with murder for hire in another case in Maryland because of that Baltimore group that was doing that separately. They actually had a murder charge against him, which they – that case was then dropped once he was given a life sentence. So um, the question is, like, why did this, the Southern District of New York, in the case that actually went to trial, not include murder for hire? And I, th what I've actually been told years later is that it was like a jurisdictional issue. But, you know, I don't know why. Never heard like, of that for Southern they, District of New York. They could have, I'm sure, made, made a case somehow to include the Yeah, it's murders. crazy. That's, I think that they would have to argument. have shown that, like, the – purported victims or the pur purported perpetrator was in the Southern District of New York. And they did have to do stuff like buy drugs undercover for the, in the Southern District of New York to make that a New York case. Um, that, you know, there are like always these, these jurisdictional things that, you know, are like kind of legal sausage making for prosecutors. Yes. Um, but, you know, is that why? I don't know. It's, it's strange. And I think truly a problem that the jury in that room and I and every everybody else, you know, hears the whole story of of Ross's, uh, you know, attempted murders for hire, and that's not actually the, the those are not the charges against right. him. Um, and then he is sentenced in part based on that. Are um, you even? But, um, but this is where I'm really not the, a lawyer. Are you allowed to do that if you don't charge someone with something? Are you allowed to rep to present evidence? That might be a really dumb question, but I would say the other thing. I'm sorry to get like really legalistic. The other thing is that there was a charge against Ross called continuing criminal enterprise, uh -huh. and that's people call that the kingpin statute. And the what that like technically means is like uh, that you have like at least five people working for you right. in your criminal enterprise, and uh, he certainly did. I think. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I think his defense probably could have gone after that and said, like, prove that, you know, like prove that there were five people working for him, because I'm not sure that they could have uh, proved that, uh, you know, I, but who knows? Yeah, I always, um, by the way, I always thought this was, you know, he needed to get eight, 10 years in prison. And the, yeah. the other guys, the other guys in the case all got like three to six. I mean, I always thought to be clear that like, yeah, you have to go to prison for this. This isn't like, oh, get probation or help it. It's like, yeah, there, there's certainly retribution that's needed. It's just a matter of he eventually was sentenced to double life without parole in Supermax. That's absolutely. Crazy. But the, this charge, you know, I, I've just, I've talked on and off the record to the Silk Road prosecutors in the years since. And you talked to Preet? No, he, these are like the people like Preet is like the Preet boss. Preet doesn't try he doesn't, it. He's the boss. Exactly. Though, makes the shots. Um, the, thing is that the this continuing criminal enterprise this kingpin kingpin statute as it's known colloquially does uh sort of like they the prosecutors say that the the violence that he was accused of sort of can be included in that in the sentencing under this kingpin statute 
I don't really, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how that works. I did, I was there when he was convicted. I was there at his sentencing and I listened to, this, to judge, the judge in that case um, lay out her argument for his sentence before she said what it was going to be. And it was extremely rational. It seemed like so well-constructed and like, I, I mean, she seems like a really intelligent obviously a per person and i was very impressed and i was like okay these are these are really good points like um is judge forrest is that forrester i hesitate to say her name because it's almost like you know i don't want to like call for retribution against her she's not a judge anymore um it's not it's not retribution. she just did her sure did her, her name is Catherine forrest all right yeah. um but then and she made this argument that i thought was was very smart um that like uh Yes, you say you took violence out of the drug trade, but actually you took it only out of one part of the drug trade. The wholesalers, essentially, who were or the the um, suppliers of drugs, you know, the people in Afghanistan or Mexico or whatever, who then um, provide drugs to the people who sold on the Silk Road, that is physical and was the violence there exists as always. Those are probably the most violence that most the most violence happens. At the source. Yes, absolutely. And then you actually, she's saying this to Ross, you actually expanded the trade as a whole. Therefore, you expanded that violence, even as you perhaps took it out of the retail part of the drug trade, you expanded it in the rest of the, this supply chain. So, you know, that's a, I, thought, I was like, wow, that's, that's actually quite interesting. She made a lot of good points like that that I thought were quite smart. And she said also, like, you know, you are making this argument um, that you're different from an average drug kingpin out of a, a place of privilege. Like, you are no different from whatever uh, guy in the Bronx or whatever who is, like, mm. handling the same flow of illegal narcotics. And like, That's a fair point. And, mm. uh, you know, I'm not going to you, – you, you, the fact that you are – you have a master's degree, that you are a Eagle Scout, that you're this – nice kid from Texas, like, I'm not going to be swayed by that. And I thought that that was all quite, like, interesting and um, seemed almost wise. And then she says, like, the conclusion of her argument, which is like, and therefore, I sentence you to two life sentences in maximum security prison with no parole. And the whole room just, like, there was, like, a deathly silence. People just, I felt like, I'd watch somebody be killed, like, on the spot. It was so shocking. Uh, I just could not believe that that was the result that she was building towards. And How did he react? I couldn't see his face. Um, I could kind of, like, hear, like, gasps in the room, you know. Um, he was in front of me, facing the judge. And, uh, and I, I, I think that is not a reasonable sentence. I think it was, a, in its own way, a miscarriage of justice. And um, I know I don't know. I'm not sure that I believe that that um, people deserve life sentence, life sentences, maybe even ever. But um, yeah. But uh, I don't know. Like certainly not in this case, and probably not many other drug cases, um, even ones where people like purportedly whatever um, even tried to have someone killed. Like it's uh, life is life. Yeah. It's a long time. And as the years have passed since then, it's like I the it now feels like I now, you know, see I, I knew immediately like this was wrong. I I did not you know, I 
I hope that like you can see that I have like a very nuanced yes, view of yes, Ross. Yes, like, I, I think you have I, a very I fair think, view. I think he he had ideals. Those ideals were corrupted to some degree. He, I believe, he tried to kill people. I don't believe he deserves to be like in a cage for the rest of his life, uh, like decades and decades to come. And uh, the He's more been time, in there a decade now, right? Exactly. And like the more time that passes, like the longer that it be, it becomes clear that that's a lo- how long life is. Uh, and the wronger it feels to me. Um, but, you know, I, I also, when I say this, I feel like it's worth saying a lot of people in prison for life are, are there unjustly. And Agreed. just the fact that, like, I followed this case, that Ross is super interesting, doesn't, like, make him, doesn't, he doesn't deserve, he doesn't deserve special treatment, but he, but it is, it is nonetheless, like, one example of a pretty unjust sentence sometimes in these types of arguments it kind of turns into everything else where you get the two loudest crowds one being lock them up forever and throw away the key and the other being yeah we really shouldn't punish people we're over incarcerating everything and it's like i recognize the punishment and retribution part of it the nuance of that and i recognize the nuance of we're way over incarcerated and you know we have some archaic sentences and stuff And, like, I kind of try to live right here with things, as I do on a lot of things. And it's like, as I said on this case in particularly, yeah, he he had to get punished for this. It's just I I don't think it's a stretch or ridiculous for people to say that like other cases, as you point out, that we're not talking about right now, maybe people from less privilege as well, those sentences that sometimes are handed out that could be archaic like this are wrong. And it's it's very hard – to break down a case, period, when you're looking at every, you know who was all affected, drug trade affects thousands of people, millions of people sometimes, depending on how big you are. In this case, I'd say it was probably millions. And it's like, you know, you, how do you put, how do you put a, a time on that? How do you put also like the value of it being shut down already on that? How do you put a deterrent on that too? And one of the Absolutely. things in your book is that the deterrent didn't work too well. <laughs> Not at all. And that's another thing that, that I heard, you know, Judge Forrest say in that room was like, basically, like, I am I am punishing the hell out of you uh, to make you an example of Ross Ulbricht to prevent, as she put it, like somebody from um, walking in your misguided footsteps or picking up your flag or something like that. And and so he was essentially being punished not only for himself, but for the crimes of like anybody who would follow him. And that did not work at all. Like, in fact, um, I wrote a, a story at one point about this study of the dark web drug trade. And of course, the dark web drug trade did not end with the Silk Road. But the dark web drug trade uh, on the dates that Ross Ulbricht's sentence was handed down actually increased uh, significantly, in part just because of um, the people were so shocked and the the news around this life sentence was enough to actually bring just more attention to something that people still didn't know that much about at the time. This was, I think, 2015 that uh, he was sentenced. And, I believe so, yeah. And, you know, more, uh, just put a spotlight on the, the the people I think just learned from that news, oh, you can buy drugs on the dark web. And that, that trade actually just continued to explode. And um, the Silk Road being taken down just as happens in the drug war, created a power vacuum that was just immediately filled first by the Silk Road 2, which was a kind of copycat site that was itself taken down in part because, as you said, um, it was created by people who had worked on the first Silk Road yes. and were therefore identified 
Um, Quite easily. Yeah. 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 And that was because of how they caught Ross and everything. And that's a very interesting story I'd I'd love for you to to recount because you spoke with him, as you said, July 4th, 2013. I believe he was caught like three months later, three, four months later, right? Just three months. Yeah. I think it was the end of October, I think. Yeah. Something like that. He was caught in San Francisco. Yeah. And he was like, uh, you know, working on his laptop, the, the laptop. Uh, in the public library, he had like tried to work in a coffee shop and couldn't find an outlet for his his like laptop, and um, he was running out of battery or something. So he went to the library next door in San Francisco and was like uh, sitting there in the science fiction section of the library, working like looking out the window um, in a public place, you know, um, which I think he might have done in part so that if even if somebody could defeat his the protections of Tor. And find his IP address. It might look still like he, you know it would be less identifiable that he, because he was on some other network. I don't know. It ultimately was not a wise move because um, he, he. What happened? Just to like describe it play by play, I guess. Like he hears this. These people having a fight behind him. Uh, it's like some this man sort of like raises his fist to hit somebody, a woman behind mm-hmm. him. He turns around. And he, at that moment, another undercover agent across the table from him, a, a woman, um, grabs his laptop while it's still open, yanks it like out of his reach. He realizes that like he's actually surrounded by undercover agents. He lunges for the laptop, but it's too late. Like some another agent has got him in a bear hug, and his laptop is open, logged into the Silk Road. He's got like, you know, if he had just, he had, as I, I think I said, his encryption on his laptop so that if he had just managed to shut the lid then it would have been encrypted you know with encryption modern encryption is strong enough that like the fbi or whoever potentially might not have been able to crack that for within like human lifetimes yeah uh, you know using the strongest computers they've got all he had to do was Uh, shut it but if he but yeah so if he had just managed to shut the lid he might have like prevented them from getting so much of the evidence that they used against them he might have actually walked like yeah uh but he didn't, and they got the laptop with everything. I mean, he had, he had on this laptop a journal of you know creating the Silk Road, a logbook of like daily activities, all of his chats with all of the people working for him, and Variety Jones and everything. So, and a and a, a like a spreadsheet of his net worth, all of his assets and things. But as you said, like he um, at the same time, he never spent most of the money that he was amassing like millions and millions of dollars in profits and bitcoin uh he just sat on it and lived this like, almost ascetic life in um in san francisco like renting a room and like a house with other people and um you know he he when i interviewed him even you know he like uh he said to me like he he spends almost none of his money stays under the radar and that was absolutely true he and I think that's because he was not like, as I said, he's not Scarface. He, no. he was a guy with principles doing this for some some reason, some motivation other than money. Yeah. Yeah. And he, when they caught him, obviously they raided his place and everything. And so they found the flash drives that had the Bitcoin on it. And I can't remember now, but- A lot the, of it was on his laptop also. It was on his laptop yeah. too. Okay. Then, so do they have that still today or did they auction that off? I think that all of the Silk Road coins were eventually auctioned. Yeah, I don't um in the years that followed. Yeah. We didn't really talk about like how he was found though. I mean, we should Yeah, yeah, say, let's do like, that. So, even though the Silk Road was online for two and a half years, his 
bitcoins were not traced to identify him. Like it still seems as late as as you know 2013, 2014 that Bitcoin could not be traced to like find someone. When even in the in his trial, when they followed the money from his server to his laptop, that seemed like cheating because you have you've already identified the computers at both ends. And they they had identified his server, by the way, through what I think was a vulnerability and likely a vulnerability in the Tor anonymity software. That's what I wanted to ask you about. Well, I yeah. forget the details now, and I actually should have looked at that earlier. I didn't remember that before we we went on camera. But there was even Obviously, it wasn't you that wrote it, but there were there were a couple other articles. I believe one of them was in Wired when this all like came out that did describe why like every hacker known to man, like all the a lot of the big names, I should say, went on record saying there is no possible way that Chris Tarbell and the cyber team at the FBI could have accessed this legally. They got this illegally. Well, it was in Iceland. This or was something. A, a very like a. I don't know, probably kind of inside baseball for the like hacker world, but there was a, a sort of controversy. The FBI tells the story that Ross Ulbricht just like set up Tor wrong on his server and um, the, it leaked its IP address, which is very possible. I mean, Ross was not like a, an expert hacker or cybersecurity expert. You know, he he did the best he could for somebody who was making it all up as he went along. But... Um, it did seem likely to me and many like other people examining the case that there was an actual vulnerability in the Tor anonymity network itself that was somehow exploited to identify this server. And, and that it wasn't just like Ross had made a screw up, you know, and, um, that would be important because it would suggest that the FBI had some vulnerability in Tor at least way back in 2013. Then when that went to, when that when his case like was going to trial and pretrial hearings, um, the defense basically said like, uh, um, well, if we think that you uh, use some secret vulnerability in Tor to do this, that you didn't, it wasn't just a mistake. Like, and if so, then is that a fourth amendment violation? You basically hacked this server, Ross's Silk Road mm -hmm. server without a warrant. Yep. And um, you need to tell us how you did this. And the prosecution, very tellingly, I think, did not say, like, we didn't hack it. Here's how we did it. They instead said, listen, even if we did hack it, here's why it's not a Fourth Amendment violation. And the reasons were, like, quite legalistic. Like, one was that Ross Ulbricht had never claimed it was his server. So how could it be a Fourth Amendment violation of his privacy if he won't say it's his server? Which is, like, this terrible catch-22 you know? And then the other one was that it's located in a foreign country. It was in yeah, Iceland. It was in Iceland. Yeah. So you, you know, the the FBI, the NSA, even whatever, can like hack a foreign server if it doesn't have an American involved without a warrant. And didn't they say like the vulnerability was something with a captcha or right, something? They, the the story initially was was that Ross Ulbricht had set up the captcha on the Silk Road. Right. You know, this like you know the scrambled letters that like used to log in to the Silk Road that that leaked the IP address. But then when that was questioned, the prosecution essentially said, "Well, listen, we're not going to tell you how we did it, but we don't need to. The, the thing is, like, even if we did hack it, like, it's not a Fourth Amendment violation. So let's just move on." <laughs> and that's what happened. In fact, the defense kind of seemed like they were trapped by this they, they they couldn't say like okay well this is ross Ulbricht's server and he has a privacy right to it because they didn't want to admit that it was it was his server 
Mm. So yeah, I, I I need to like I said, I need to go look at that again. I should have been more ready for that, well, but it no just but the, it just didn't look like. I think the way you just described it, like catch twenty two, is the best way to describe how it got through because it the way that they went to defend it made no sense, and then they fell back on the well. Then admit it's yours. Exactly. So and um, you know anyway. So I think that that's how I think that there's definitely like. On it, whatever. I have my own theories about how the FBI found the Silk Road server, and then they had his laptop. They actually identified Ross. Ross. They they got the name Ross Ulbricht for the first time from a very like silly kind of mistake he made. That was is, Alfred, right? The IRS guy. Yeah, there was an IRS agent, um, Gary Alfred, who was just essentially googling. Um, to, and he he had seen this post of someone like seeming to promote the Silk Road on a drug forum under the name Altoid. I think this is, mm. if I can remember correctly. That's like, right. Yes. And then Altoid had al- had also been a username that was posting to a coding forum saying, can anybody help me with web development on some other project that Ross Albrecht was doing? And he had listed his email address in that second post, rossalbrecht at gmail.com. Mm. Tried to delete it, but it was like captured in somebody's response to the message. So... That was the first time that, that law enforcement came upon his name, and ultimately, uh, that plus the server was how they got him. How they got to him yeah. in San Francisco. So they bagged him and everything. But you were starting this explaining about the the genesis of your book, which is the Bitcoin traceability. Right. And I think, if I remember correctly, this also this had to do with Carl Force and Sean Bridges, the DEA well, and Secret Service agents who were dirty in this case? This is really where the story of my book begins. Like the Silk Road case is something that I covered many, you know, I, I told all of this in the book, but just almost like in passing to try to get to right, this. Right. So um, there's one IRS agent, IRS criminal investigator, Tigrin Gambarian, was uh, based in Oakland at the time. And um, his superiors were, I think, a bit annoyed that like, um, they had been left out of the Silk Road case. But then Tigrin got a tip from a cryptocurrency exchange where you buy and sell, you know, Bitcoins, whatever, for traditional money, that like what that this uh mysterious guy, Carl Mark Force, was cashing out hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of Bitcoins from on some unknown origin through this exchange. Couldn't tell the exchange where they came from. It seemed kind of fishy. Tigrin immediately figured out Karl Mark Force is one of those Baltimore agents investigating the Silk Road. He was a DEA agent. He was undercover he was with un- Ross. He right? had been undercover on the Silk Road, yes. And uh, Tigrin, the IRS agent in Oakland, starts digging in and he's like, I need to, I, I think that Karl Mark Force was, was taking, was on the take essentially from the Silk Road. Like uh, that he's that he, Karl Marx Force also believing that Bitcoin was untraceable was like doing the kind of typical corrupt cop thing of like just grabbing whatever money was available, uh, and also even there was evidence that he that he he had started to encrypt his conversations, um, his undercover conversations with the Dread Pirate Roberts, so that even law enforcement couldn't read them. Karl Marx Force was secretly communicating. So you know this looks really suspicious, but Tigran is like. I just need to prove that he's getting paid, that Karl Mark Force's dirty Bitcoins are coming from the Silk Road. How am I going to do that? Everybody tells him Bitcoin is untraceable. That's not going to help you. 
And Tigran, working for the IRS, being a forensic accountant, I mean, the IRS Criminal Investigations Unit is, is a division, is kind of a strange animal. It's like these forensic accountants who also like have guns and Yeah, people don't know people. about this, but I mean, yeah, yeah, um, very real. And so he's, but he also is like a, you know, he has like, he's somewhat of a computer nerdy guy as well. And he had looked at Bitcoin and thought like, you know, this blockchain thing that powers Bitcoin, it does seem like it it's has every transaction listed there. Like I must be able to, to like figure out which addresses, you know, the, the blockchain only includes Bitcoin addresses, no identifying information, but he's like, I can see money moving from address to address. If I can just like tr crack this, then maybe I can follow the money and prove that where Karl Mark Force's Bitcoins came from. So he essentially did this, like him just with no training, he just sort of invented techniques on the fly, like was actually like working in his living room with his like baby daughter in his lap after hours. And he traced Karl Mark Force's money, this DEA agents, and proved that he had been paid by the Dread Pirate Roberts hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of Bitcoin. And that he was essentially acting as like a double agent inside the DEA, selling material, selling investigative material, like information to the Dread Pirate Roberts as a, a mole. And uh, yeah, he that was the first time that, I mean, uh, uh, this case. What, what, what about Goniger though, and chain analysis? Well, yeah, so even then, after Karl Mark Force had been identified as, the first time anybody was ever identified through cryptocurrency tracing as having done something criminal. Even after this DEA agent force was identified, there was still another sum of like hundreds of thousands of dollars of Bitcoin that was missing, that, that everybody could see it come out of the Silk Road, but nobody could see where it was it had gone. And Tigrin, everybody else, like on the case, his prosecutors and everybody thought like the Karl Mark force must have taken that too. Mm. Tigrin was the only one who thought like, mm, this looks different. It's like the way that the money is moving here looks like somebody else he traced that money to and found that it was a second corrupt agent this time a secret service agent also in baltimore that there were two dirty agents one acting as a mole one just stealing money from the silk road he was yeah so he was secret service but he was working directly with force like they were both there amazingly, for the curtis green thing right amazingly they were not even aware of each other <laughs> they, it was just like seemingly a coincidence that they you know or maybe who knows i don't want to like cast aspersions on the culture of law enforcement in baltimore but like uh <laughs> But well, they, all, they made the wire already. But it's they okay. they both like seemed to believe that they could get away with this because of this myth that Bitcoin was like untraceable money that you could you could just grab as much of it as you wanted and nobody could could follow the money and prove what you had done. And they were both wrong and they both spent time in prison. Um and yeah, that's got like six, seven years, I think, right? They're both out now, I guess. So I think like a bit less than that, but okay. close to that, yeah. Um but as you said, um, in that second case, Tigrin had met this guy, Michael Groniger, this Danish guy. Um, On the Sean Bridges case, you're saying? Yes. And, okay. and they, uh, Michael Groniger was like a sort of old school Bitcoiner who uh, had worked at a cryptocurrency, cryptocurrency exchange, like very technically brilliant guy who saw the potential to actually, who not only saw that like Bitcoin was traceable, uh, but built a company and a very specific tool called Reactor to do that. He was the founder of a company called Chainalysis. Right, right. Which today still is like the leading cryptocurrency tracing firm. But his his very first real case was that 
he kind of consulted with Tigran. They worked together and traced that second corrupt agent's money. Sean Bridges, the Secret Service agent. And what is what is it that he figured out again? There's something to do with when you do a Bitcoin transaction on the blockchain, there's a sending wallet, a receiving wallet, and I don't think it's called a wallet, but a change address. Is that it? Yeah. So to be clear, like Michael Groninger, not to complicate things too much, but he was not the one who came up with all these techniques. There was a, a, a woman, right, Sarah right. Micklejohn at University of California, San Diego, who was an academic researcher and... And uh, she was the first one with her co-authors of this paper that was published even before the Silk Road was taken down that showed that there was this kind of bag of tricks that could be used. I mean, the, the, the blockchain looked like if it wasn't anonymous, it was at least pseudonymous. Like you, can, you could see money moving from address to address, but if you couldn't figure out who owned which address, then you can't follow the money. You can't prove right. anybody is involved. Um, but she started to think of tricks that allowed you to connect somebody's identity to their blockchain, to their Bitcoin addresses. And you were just describing one. I mean, the, an even simpler one is like uh, called like, basically it's called multi-input transactions. This sounds technical, but it's pretty simple. To spend money from, to spend the Bitcoins at a certain address, you have to control the key for that address. Mm -hmm. If you spend uh, all the Bitcoins at multiple addresses at the same time, then you must control the keys for all those addresses if you do that in one transaction. So you look at that transaction and you say, oh, um, I can see that every one of these addresses must have been controlled by the same person or organization. So you're already starting, instead of looking at a bunch of like distinct addresses, you're like looking at groups of addresses, clusters is what she calls them, that all must belong to one person or service or something. And then Another one is change addresses. Like you, there, there was this, there is, I think, this property of many Bitcoin wallets that when you spend the, all the money at an address, you can't just spend a fraction of it. You have to like smash open the whole piggy bank, send all the money to uh, the recipient, and then get change back for whichever mm. portion of it you didn't intend to spend. That change goes to a new address. If you can identify that new address as the change address, Often because it looks very new and the other address that the money went to is not new, it's like somebody who's received money there before, then that change address, you can tell, oh, that change address belongs to the sender because that's where they got back their change. Oh. So then you can follow the money from like, you know, the original sender to their change to where they send it again. And it's, this is called appeal chain because it's like, this is Sarah Micklejohn's term for it, right. uh, appeal chain, because it's like you've got this water, like a roll of bills, and you're like, you take one bill out of the roll, hand it to somebody, then you put it back in a different pocket, but it still belongs to you. You put the rest of the bills back in a different pocket. Then you pull it out again, you spend one more, you like peel off a bill, then you put that wad of bills back into another pocket. Mm. But it, that wad of bills always belongs to the same person. Now, if you can follow that wad of bills until it hits a cryptocurrency exchange or even go back in time to see like where it originated, like where somebody spent dollars to buy that wad of digital, Bit whatever, Bitcoins, then you can, if you're a law enforcement agency, send a subpoena to the exchange and force them to hand over identifying information a lot of times. Is there a way... Sometimes when I start thinking about this, especially when we visualize the actual process like that, I'll – in my head, it, temporarily, I'll mix up like exchange with like what 
isn't considered an exchange and everything. But maybe a good broad question here is that while this this takes a lot of work and is hard to do, the, the bottom line is that this can be done and governments, for example, can trace Bitcoin transactions. But is there a way that you can do – let's just stay with Bitcoin – Bitcoin transactions and not be traced? That's a really good question. You know, I read Sarah Micklejohn's paper and I was like, oh, I see. Like sometimes it's possible – I read it in 2013. When the Silk Road was still online, when everybody still believed that it was possible to, to spend Bitcoins in an untraceable way. But you were still surprised at trial in 2015 well, when they said they did it? Well, see, like, uh, that's the thing. Like, I read that paper and I was like, I see, like, it's if you screw up and oh, like, leave okay. these traces, yeah. then you can be, they can follow the right. money. But anybody who's smart, like, um, you know, would find ways to avoid that. And uh, so it seemed like it was still possible if you stayed a step ahead to avoid that that kind of tracing and for you know because like it's like they never trace satoshi that we know of well i think that's that is actually because satoshi never spent any of his bitcoins or or cashed them out or had to interact with an exchange or did much of anything mm. i mean that's but it is true he's like the one he or she or whatever is the one individual who has defied like every attempt to identify them uh yeah so it sounds like and i could be putting words in your mouth so correct me if i'm wrong it sounds like the answer is no like there'll be a it may take a long time with some because there's sporadic transactions or limited history or whatever but they could eventually use the two chains that are occurred i don't know if chains, but the, the the two addresses i'm sorry that that occur within a transaction as long as one has ever happened they can figure out the geographic location where that came from, perhaps. Well, the thing is, like, if there there is a cat and mouse game here, for and for I thought that, like, yeah, the look at this paper, like the cats have some cool tricks here. But if you're a smart mouse, you can stay ahead. It turns out, <clears throat> I mean, as cat and mouse games do, this just like kept evolving. And the thing about the blockchain, this permanent record of every Bitcoin transaction. Is that if the cats like come up with a new trick, it's not just that like they can use that from then that point on to to like trace new transactions. They can go back in time, look at the blockchain stretching back years, which cannot be changed or erased. It's right. copied out to thousands and thousands of computers, and identify illegal whatever transactions you were trying to hide years ago, and and so. No, I, I I no longer have much of much confidence of any kind that you can do a Bitcoin transaction with enough secrecy that it will stand withstand that test of like of time. That like at no point in the future will these rather brilliant investigators like you know people like Sarah Micklejohn and then you know Chainalysis, this company that was created by Michael Groniger, I mentioned earlier to kind of like weaponize her tools to build them into software and like has now uh, been able to recruit all of the smartest forensic people to build on these tricks and like find constantly find new ways to trace bitcoins it's just so fascinating to me though because like i'm just i'm trying to cook up scenarios in my head probably doing a horrible job but if i have like if i if i have a usb drive that is my Bitcoin, which I do, right? It's a it's a drive. It doesn't exist on the internet. I, I have to plug it in and whatever, but I got that one day 
it, let's say I, let's say that some dude somewhere bought it and left it somewhere and he didn't know who I was and I came to pick it up for a predetermined sum of money or whatever. And then I go and I use that drive that was made by some manufacturer, obviously, so that part's traceable. And I go somewhere else in the world and I start using it. Like, could they, they well, could how, find how did that? You, how did you get those Bitcoins in the first place? That's a good question. That's where I'm starting to think about what like, I need. Did you buy I them from an exchange? Yeah, so you're saying, okay, there's the question. That's usually the the cash-in or cash-out point is where people get caught. Right, so it's, it has to be through the exchange because they can subpoena the exchange's information to get the address, any fill-in-the-blanks that they need. That's definitely like the most common way by, by far. Um, I guess that it's, it's also possible to – I mean the, the other trick that Sarah Micklejohn did – was that she started doing essentially undercover transactions with services on the on in the in the Bitcoin economy? So she moved her own bitcoins into and out of the Silk Road repeatedly. Remember, this is when the Silk Road was still online, and then she would be able to see, oh, my money went into that address, and that must be a Silk Road address. And because she created, she had those clustering techniques. She could then see that's not just one Silk Road address; that's part of a cluster of millions of Silk Road addresses. So she then could identify millions of addresses and then see people's Bitcoins going into them and, and identify, oh, that's a that's a drug deal, that's a drug deal, that's a drug deal, pretty much. Then the question is like, who are those people right, doing those deals? Right. And yeah, you're right. Like most of the time you identify them through an exchange. And so in other cases, like people back then especially would like post their Bitcoin addresses publicly like um, soliciting yes. donations or yes. whatever. Uh, but and, if you don't have that, I guess I'm saying. Yeah. It, if I mean, the thing is, like, there's not that many. Like, I guess if you mine the Bitcoins, that's potentially one way to do it without identify, identification. Not that many people mine their own Bitcoins and then use them in a drug deal. Most people buy them from an exchange. And when you buy them from an exchange, almost always you have to give some identifying information. So if they mine them, not necessarily, but mining also takes not only significant energy and power and skill to do, but it happens slowly. You can't just mine a hundred Bitcoin like that. Yeah, I don't. I mean, uh, I don't think there are very many people who. I mean, I, this is uh, it's it's not something that I've like thought about that much or I hear about much. But I suppose if you were uh, if you wanted to be incredibly careful, you could mine. Um, bitcoins yourself i'm not even sure how this works anymore because most my back in the early days of bitcoin you could just mine bitcoins on your own computer um today most people contribute their their computers processing power to a mining pool where like you're you're helping mm. you're you're sharing your processing power and then you get back like a fraction of the rewards and so that might mean that there is something traceable in the way that you receive that money from the mining pool so I, I don't know. That, I'm not sure that that's even that is a solution. I, I haven't really examined it enough, but it's so rare. I mean, the people who are buying drugs on the Silk Road, and we didn't get into this, but I, I as an experiment for Forbes, bought marijuana from three different dark web drug sites, including the Silk Road. And uh, of course, I, I did not mine my own Bitcoins. I bought them from Coinbase, which was like a, <laughs> a, an exchange. Yeah. 
And uh, then as an experiment, once I read Sarah Micklejohn's paper, I gave her all my Coinbase addresses in a kind of simulation of like, if she had subpoenaed Coinbase, this is what she would get. And I told her like, see what you can, can you trace my drug deals? And she immediately was able to identify this one, this amount of money went to the Silk Road. This one went to this drug market. This one went to this one. See that, you know what though? Now that I put that visual on it, because everyone knows Coinbase or is aware of what it, most people are aware of what Coinbase is. That doesn't seem that hard. That actually, that's very believable. And, and this was still in 2013. So even then I, I yeah. believed that there was some privacy still possible with Bitcoins. But, you know, I, and, and then even the trial, as I said, you know, I was kind of surprised that they, I, I was surprised that they'd use this because I'd never seen it before, but it kind of still made sense. And it still seemed like kind of an easy tracing case. What, what platform had they used within like the Silk Road community to buy and sell Bitcoin? Mt. Gox? I think a lot of people did because it was, okay. that was all that existed in 2011. Um, that was the only one in 2011? I think so. Yeah. For a long time, there was hmm. just Mt. Gox. Then, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because after the after the Silk Road case and the case against these two corrupt agents, which was truly like the first proof of concept Bitcoin tracing criminal yeah. case, um, the next big case that Chainalysis and Tigre and Gambarian, this IRS agent, took on together was the theft of half a billion dollars worth of Bitcoins from Mt. Gox, which by 2014 had been like completely pillaged by unknown hackers actually nobody even knew where the money had gone but but you know had been bankrupted by what was either insider theft or hacker external theft of this massive sum of bitcoins and chainalysis and, took on this case like to, to figure out where that money had gone and the frenchman who was in charge of that place was mark kerpelis is that right or mark Mark Carpellis was the Carpellis. CEO of, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the creator of Mt. Gox. Yeah. So the, Actually, I'm sorry, he was not he was not the creator. He 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 acquired it. Mt. Gox was where, as you said, pretty it was like the main exchange. It was where people went to buy and trade Bitcoin on the markets. And again, I keep on in my head. I'm trying to think of something else with that that I'll ask you about later. But I'm going to say it wrong if I do right now. So we'll stay on this. But they, in 2014, suddenly in what was to that point the the biggest hack in the history of cryptocurrency the platform was hacked and i don't know 600,000 800,000 some ridiculous number of bitcoins were stolen and the accusation was quickly oh carpalus might have been behind this exactly, embezzled yeah. it out himself but very quickly the guys who you spoke with in your story which was the IRS agent along with Goniger over at, at Chainalysis they were brought into the case, at least Goniger was at first, and concluded that Carpalus was just incompetent and had left vulnerabilities and that, no, this was out there and they needed to go find it. Exactly. I mean, Groninger, um, the Dan this Danish guy who- saying Goniger, sorry. Yeah, who, who yeah. um, I mean, it's not even, I'm sure I'm saying it wrong too. It's a Danish name. But like, <laughs> uh, uh, he he had now- seen the potential, you know, in, in some of Sarah Micklejohn's tricks. And then he had chain analysis very quickly, like started getting like venture funding and stuff and, and, uh, was able to recruit like super smart people who, uh, were not publishing their, their findings about how to trace cryptocurrencies, but were like keeping these tricks secret in some cases. I mean, you and I can talk about like 
how you trace bitcoins and what I know about how to do it. But there, there are definitely like now secret sauce techniques that Chainalysis will not share with anybody about how they do it. So um, he actually, just as Chainalysis was, was getting started, took on this case pro bono. He actually, I think, saw it as like um, a way to help Bitcoin survive. Like, I'm going to help figure out who took this money so that um, we can solve this case, show that it's possible to hold people accountable for stealing like massive uh, troves of Bitcoin and and also show that like uh, that this is the, the criminal sums and like this is the criminal money and this is the clean money. And um, mm. th the whole Bitcoin economy is not like a wash in criminal money because banks don't want to touch that. You know, they don't want to be accused of money laundering. Um, so he took on this case. And at the same time, it happened, as you as you were getting at, I think, that T. Green Kambarian was taking on a different case, which was this other shady exchange called BTCE that, and this is a, a, a strange coincidence almost, BTCE was um, by 2015 or 2014, uh, this other competing exchange that had become a kind of uh, destination for all kinds of criminal cryptocurrency. Mm. You could see on the blockchain money flowing into it from all sorts of, like from the dark web, from ransomware, which was an, a new phenomenon where people were extorting, hackers were extorting people. Are you saying like the government could see this when they look using their tracing techniques? Exactly. Okay. Tigran Gambarian chain analysis too could see this. And yet nobody knew who ran BTCE. It was this very mysterious, weird exchange that was like existing out there, but nobody even knew where it was based, who had created it. It was this strange black hole in the whole Bitcoin economy. And it was actually getting very big. It was, um, I think, rivaling Mt. Gox in size when Mt. Right. Gox went offline. Was, you know, was So they had collapsed. an incentive. Uh, well, it's more than that even. So um, this is where, like, the cases kind of strangely converge. Tigran and, and Michael Groninger were, like, working separately, and they'd worked together on the Sean Bridges case. But then Michael Groninger... Um, in his kind of pro bono capacity, helping out the Mt. Gox bankruptcy trustees in J in Japan, where they right, that's where it's based. He yeah. he traced those stolen funds from Mt. Gox on the blockchain, and showed that a big chunk of them was going were going into BTCE, mm. and at the same time, uh, Tigrin essentially was working on the BTCE case, and together they kind of once they saw that they their cases were once again, kind of, uh, there was a kind of combination, a confluence of events here. Uh, they figured out that somebody named WME was, that was their kind of pseudonym, uh, was feeding all of these, these hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Bitcoins into BTCE and that WME was an administrator of BTCE. The How same, did they figure out he was an, an admin? I'm trying to remember like the whole um, investigative like process here. Um, I think essentially Tigran being a law enforcement agent had figured out where the BTCE server was located. And of all places, it ended up being like in Virginia, just miles away from where he was then working in DC and actually set up a kind of like a, essentially a, like a wiretap of, on that server. I mean, I think maybe it was more just like a, an image they had, located and copied the contents of it. I quick question on that though, because I yeah. remember this in your book and I remember going, that's kind of weird. But you said that he said, Tigran, he immediately ruled out that this was a honeypot CIA experiment. 
or something? How do you immediately rule rule that out when you find the server four miles from Langley? Well, I don't know. I mean, the um, I don't know. Maybe we can't rule it out. Maybe the CIA was involved in running this shady exchange. <laughs> I mean, who knows? Um, it's it it it's kind of like uh, regardless. BTCE was whether it was a CIA um, operation. I don't know what like the end goal would have been. Just knowing where the story goes from there, right. um, but or whoever it was located right there in Virginia. I think the Tigran ruled it out just probably because he comes from law enforcement and doesn't you know is maybe not as skeptical <laughs> of like intelligence as you or I might be. But yeah. um, by like get, essentially finding the server. Uh, which was not that well hidden. It was just like, a, this was an exchange that was on the open web. So you just had to have law enforcement capabilities to do that and getting an image of it to get like all the contents of it, which they did stealthily so that to not like tip off the administrators. Right. He could see like that, he could see all the accounts of the administrators, one of whom was WME and all their communications. And then uh, he could, and then working with Groninger who was f following the money and also had the Mount Gox, uh, the, well, I'm sorry, the, uh, the I, this is a bit complicated because um, some of the money from, that was stolen from Mount Gox was actually cashed out through Mount Gox too. Uh, oh yeah, but, wasn't it like they found, part of the reason he ruled out Carpolis was because then they found like 200,000 Bitcoin or something like that. They were able to get it back. That's a different, yeah, this is another part of the story that like. That's well, not the that, same thing. That Carpolis like. Um, after this whole bankruptcy, it was like, oh, I found like another, <laughs> was it 200, I think 200,000 something like that, um, bitcoins. Yeah. But also, um, Groninger could see when the bitcoins that were stolen were being cashed out, like what times of day. Um, and just as a kind of loose, um, I mean, was, this is not like a definitive clue, but like he could see what times of day this was happening. And it seemed to be happening in essentially like, you know, Russia. Middle East time zones, mm. not where Carpellus was based in Japan, um, or in fact, like any other, you know, anywhere in the U.S. And and he immediately started to, to suspect that once you see that time zone, that in fact this money was stolen by somebody in, in Russia, because that is, you know, right. that's always where we think of like um, these hackers being located, and unfortunately, that puts them beyond like the reach of a lot of law enforcement, but. He and, and Tigran Gambarian then essentially combined their data and <clears throat> together showed that WME was both an administrator of BTCE and the person feeding the Mt. Gox millions into BTCE, that mm. the same person had been involved as the kind of money launderer for the for the BTC for the Mt. Gox hackers that was like working as one of them as had created BTCE, then in fact, likely BTCE, this whole exchange was created just as a way to launder the Mt. Gox, like heist, essentially. Mm. And then through other like kind of um, like investigative techniques, they, they found like some slip ups where WME had at one point like revealed his real name. Uh, Tigran also did the, did a, like a lot of like kind of more traditional internet detective work or law enforcement work where he um, tracked his IPs around the world and eventually like found a, a hotel where WME had checked in. And this uh, is Alexander Vinnick? Turned out to be Alexander Vinnick, this Russian guy. So 
now this this is essentially like the the solution to the Mt. Gox mystery, as far as anybody's ever cracked it, that Alexander Vinnick was not only like the kind of money man, uh, he's not been convicted of this essentially, for the Mt. Gox hackers, the one who was sort of like, his, it was his job to like take the money right. and clean it somehow. But also he had, perhaps not alone, but had created BTCE, a whole exchange that became itself a kind of extremely criminal Bitcoin exchange, cryptocurrency exchange, just for the purposes of funneling this money into it. Like a, it's just an incredible, incredible kind of ambition to create. It's almost like creating your your own bank or your own Wall Street trading floor just to kind of like you know funnel in your money that sure. you're, you as like a mafia don are um, end up with on this as a problem. Like you have this liquidity problem, so you create a whole financial institution to launder it. That's what Alexander Vinnick. Is accused of doing. He's he's been convicted of money laundering. He's now you know he served time in in France of all places. Now he's been extradited to the U.S. So uh, you know I don't want to like he hasn't faced charges here. I don't want to. Like, he's innocent until proven guilty of this stuff. I guess. But <laughs> you're um, so fair. It's he also I you know I interviewed him through his lawyer in, in prison and um, oh really he claims his innocence and he says he was set up. But whatever. You, you know, gonna like, testify for him at trial? I don't testify for anybody <laughs> I'm whenever I'm possible. I'm <laughs> they, it's funny, like that. That's come up in another case in the book, and like I, I'm, I politely decline to get involved. <laughs> Fair but, enough. Yeah. So they, they. Bottom line is they end up finding this whole other exchange, and we're. I'm getting it mixed up, but he. He comes back with the. What's it called? I want video or something like that. This is yeah. I mean, th that's a case that like is comes back later and comes up later in the book, um, where it was essentially, um, you know, maybe we'll get to this, but the, it was yeah. a a massive dark web market for child sexual abuse videos, and uh, he I mean, was long, he was allowing that market to exist. Well, it turns out that BTCE would play a role that this like very criminal like you know criminally tainted money laundering crypto exchange was helping you know was being used by some users of this essentially what we used to call child porn dark web site and that is part of that will come up later in that case okay. but in the meantime i mean what was yeah. more important and this has not really been told like very publicly before i don't think chain analysis never even really revealed their role in this case but Michael Groniger and Tigran Gambarian solved the mystery of where that Mt. Gox money went and essentially helped to also to vindicate Mark Carpellis, who had been accused of stealing all this money. And instead, they showed that it seemed to be like a, at least a Russian like connected group of hackers that had taken it. Now that, you know, I don't think anybody's got back their Mt. Gox bitcoins, but it, um, because it's still like an ex an it's kind of tied up in this endless legal limbo, but that was the the kind of first case where, I mean, the Silk Road corrupt agents was the proof of concept. Mount Gox was the case where it became clear just how powerful these tracing techniques would be. That you can often crack like what seem like you know cold cases, and I would say that's kind of the beginning of this new era of the, the golden age of the golden era of cryptocurrency tracing, where People like Tigran and Michael Groniger at Chainalysis would just be involved in their uh, clients are the government, effectively. Right. I mean, Chainalysis sells its techniques to exchanges where they kind of are like trying themselves to not be used for money laundering. 
they have like their own laws they have to follow and stuff. But then also, yes, like Chainalysis has all these government contracts and they work with every law enforcement agency practically. And they've become a secret weapon for cracking like so many kinds of cybercrime and just illicit activity. If it involves a blockchain, it can't be traced. It's the exact opposite of what, you know, I and even perhaps Satoshi and so many other people thought in 2011, like cryptocurrency is extremely traceable, or at least Bitcoin is and many others. And that has been used as a incredibly powerful lever to just like crack open so many what, you know, seemed like uncrackable cyber criminal cases. See, if that's true, and it clearly is, by the way, it's kind of inarguable that if if people take at least certain actions, and there's a lot of little actions they can take that open that up, like, yes, it, it, it can be traced. But we think all the time, not just Satoshi, who you already laid out, technically didn't send Bitcoin anywhere, so it's not really applicable. But you know, when people put on their tinfoil hat that I don't really think is much of a tinfoil hat and start thinking about, all right, who are the powers that be in the world, be it governments or individuals associated with governments, etc., who don't want to see things like Bitcoin or crypto in general succeed, you got to think they're out there as fronts buying into these things. I mean, that whole Do Kwan Luna thing, that was one of the most obvious government psyops I've ever seen in my life. I mean, they remind me who that is. That's the dude, and I'm I'm really uneducated to talk about the full ins and outs of this, but that's the guy who ran Luna and and the and the whole platform that crashed I'm trying to bring it back to me. Maybe this was like six months ago, something like that, where essentially he was creating a stable coin that was benchmark to bitcoin so what happened was when it when the house of cards came down it also pulled the price of bitcoin down which as we know bitcoin is the one cryptocurrency out of all of them that doesn't have like a centralized company or something around it we, we don't know satoshi it, it's it's this totally right like, government can't just go in and like invade bitcoin so they have to find other ways in and so when you see what this kid was trying to do it just seems fairly obvious that like clearly this was a way to attack the currency but what I'm getting at with the traceability is that if you had – let's just go with governments as an example. If you had China and the US and Russia, that, that would probably – Russia – I feel like Vladimir Putin was probably early some of this stuff. But if you had governments like that out there buying Bitcoin, hypothetically people like Gambarian and stuff would know that now because they'd be able to trace it. But there has to be a way that, that – they're deep enough and far enough away without any identifying markers as far as who's doing the buying on their behalf that we haven't figured out who the quote-unquote 5% whale of Bitcoin is or something like that. I do believe that – I mean Satoshi is, is like whatever, um, yeah, well, exhibit we, number we one. That, yeah, like yeah. Th it's possible to mine a ton of Bitcoin and sit on it, never do anything with it, and perhaps you cannot be traced or um, – you know, it might be possible with like just enough restraint or enough just like doing as little as possible with your coins uh, to use them anonymously. But you know, this is what I have essentially thought over the years. Well, okay, so you can be traced if you do this, but if you do this, then you'll be okay. Oh, well, actually, no, it turns out they figured out a way to trace that. Oh, if you put it, if you put your money through a mixing service that like, you know, mixes up your coins with other people's and then sends back to you like untraceable coins. That should work. Oh, actually, no, it looks like they can defeat that. Um, in fact, they busted many of these mixers themselves. 
um, oh, well, what if you like, uh, maybe like flashing forward to almost the more like the present day almost, what if you use Monero, a, a coin that is designed to be untraceable from the start and builds in its sort of mixing capabilities into the protocol of the coin itself so that every Monero transaction is mixed up with other people's transactions and has all these privacy, untraceable, you know, properties and features. Um, at least that must be untraceable. Actually, well, it looks like, I mean, the evidence, this, this is Monero people uh, don't like it when I talk about this, but there are, there are, I, there are cases where it appears very likely that Monero was traced. And I've seen a leaked Chainalysis presentation documented, like it, it was the, the, this is like flashing forward, almost like the end of the story of the book, but where the Italian police uh, received a presentation from Chainalysis, the, the leaked presentation is, is in Italian, where they say that they can trace Monero with some probability, if not certainty. And that's often good enough because as a prosecutor, you can then just start sending out subpoenas to every possibility that people don't realize that like, you don't have to, um, you know, it's not like creating some, some different possibilities or confusion is not enough. Reasonable cause is enough. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, the story, you know, I, I just, uh, it's, it, the, I do still actually believe that it's possible to use cryptocurrency, uh, untraceably. I don't think it's possible with Bitcoin. I don't think it's possible with most cryptocurrencies. The only one, that I truly am like confident saying today is untraceable is, is Zcash, which maybe you, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's like, it fully encrypts its blockchain, uses like very clever new fangled kinds of encryption to do this. Um, uses something called a zero knowledge proof so that you can essentially like confirm that a transaction is real and happens on the blockchain, but without revealing any information about it. Um, but sorry, this is like, beyond my um like sort of technical capacity too but but zcash does appear to be untraceable but then again like i i remind myself sometimes i thought the same thing about bitcoin back in 2011 so mm. um every time that i've thought like oh this seems like we actually uh this seems like a, if that wasn't untraceable at least this must be the cats like catch up in this cat and mouse game but if some, and maybe I'm thinking this wrong, but I'm just trying to play hypothetical here. If somebody on behalf of, let's say, the U.S. government, let's make it simple. Somebody goes on, with, gets a brand new wallet, makes a huge purchase, maybe over time in a bunch of tranches, to the same wallet, takes it off chain. So they, ta or they take it off the server, right? So in this case, they would never use Coinbase, but let's just say it was Coinbase. Take it off Coinbase and they put it somewhere. Well, now it's on it's on a flash drive. No one can see where it's going. And then it switches hands a bunch, gets to the right people, gets to Jerome Powell at the Federal. I'm just making it very easy. Gets to Jerome Powell at the Federal Reserve. He then has it. You can't real like you'd have to do a whole case behind the scenes to find out that he's the one who actually bought it. But hypothetically it could be done, but they could set it up in a way that makes it like impossible to get there. Governments, I'm saying. Well, the thing is, like, <clears throat> you might not, like, a, when you, sure, you can, like, take your Bitcoins out of an exchange, put them at an address that you host yourself, uh, where the keys for that are on your USB drive, hide that in a pop popcorn 
can under the floorboards yeah. of your bedroom closet. This is actually that's what, literally what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah that that happened. That, this was a case described earlier this week. But by the way, <laughs> and, but it doesn't matter because the the fact is like if if uh, those coins like if if they can then subpoena the, the Coinbase, the exchange where you got those coins, they get your identity. They like figure out. Oh, like the coins moved to this address. We don't know where the keys for that address are, but we know the name of the guy who holds them. So we're going to go raid his house and we'll look under all of his floorboards and find your. You know, they, if they, it's still there, yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, what actually I'm referring to is like earlier this week, a guy who hacked the Silk Road in 2012 and stole 50,000 bitcoins from the Silk Road because of a vulnerability in it then sat on those coins for a decade, uh, was identified. He was, I mean, he was identified last year, but the Department of Justice just announced this. He was identified, I think, because he had interacted with an exchange, probably cashing out like a very small amount of those coins. But that was enough for them to get his identity and literally find these Bitcoins on a hard drive under the floorboards of his bedroom closet. And this is brand new. It happened on they they announced they revealed this for the first time on Monday, so when they seized those fifty thousand bitcoins from him in November of last year, they were worth three point three six billion dollars because Holy he had sat on them shit. for so long. But the but you know, it's also just a testament to the fact that like the blockchain had had recorded his transactions years ago, and that was enough for him to be caught. You know, you it's just. Uh, okay, I, I have the – sorry, I was making a face there. But I have the article up here. Mm -hmm. So this is the one you're talking about? This is last – Yeah. Yeah, that's looks the, like last that's week. The, that's the case, yeah. How is it well, – I was confused about how did we get to – because I see the number here too. How did we get to $3.36 billion when it was only – Oh, that's not a point. That's a comma. Never mind. No, no, I was, was reading it, and it's, it looked like it said 50.676 Bitcoin, but it says 50,600. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now it makes sense. In, so they in got November of guy. last year, at the time of the seizure, 50,000 Bitcoins was $3.36 billion, which, right. which at the time, at, at that time, would have been actually the biggest seizure, not only of cryptocurrency, but of any currency of any kind that the Department of Justice had ever made. But then, actually, just a few months later, they did an even bigger one. But I don't know if you want to get into that. There was like this. Um, this is you know this is like comes yeah, right at the, at the end of the story of my book, so it's not a story I really tell. Like uh, this, this biggest case of all time is just one that that uh, unfolded just as I was finishing the book, so it's only mentioned like in the epilogue. But there was this case of this New York couple. Maybe you've seen like the rap videos of one of the this the. The woman in this couple, um, she goes by Razzle Khan, I don't and think so. she and her husband, uh, who was like a Russian American guy, were accused of laundering four point five billion dollars worth of bitcoins that were stolen from a, yet another exchange, Bitfinex. Uh, and is that the guy? Is that where the general counsel Frost was from? Let's see. Frost. Who worked with? He was the guy who caught for uh, Carl Force. On the on the the DA agent on the Silk Road case, he was going back and forth with him because he was the general counsel, and he was like, "This guy's sketchy." And he went to the government. It turned out it was one of their own, and then they no we that's talked a, about that. Well, um, he was working in a different exchange, uh, Bitstamp. Oh, Bitstamp. Okay. Um, right, yeah, sorry. he's the one going back to the 
that story, he gave, he was the one who gave Tigran the tip that right. he saw these dirty bitcoins coming in right. that led to like the takedown of these corrupt agents. Um, but this was a different case, like 2016, I think is when, Bit, maybe 2017 is when Bitfinex was hacked. I think 120,000 bitcoins were taken in that case. And um, at the time of that, they, those were seized in early this, this year, uh, $3.6 billion at least was recovered of the $4.5 billion worth oh, stolen. I did, I did see this case. It's coming back to me it's now. A, yeah. It's mostly gotten a lot of attention, not just because of that it's, it set this record, but also because uh, the, the woman the, of this, in this couple um, had made these like egregiously cringy <laughs> rap yes. videos. I mean, like truly. Yeah, they're not great. Yeah. They're, they're not great. I, I remember this now. So they had they had like ninety five thousand Bitcoin or something like that. I don't know. I can't remember the math, but it would have been three point six billion dollars worth that was taken in that case. But why didn't? And by the way, that was IRS criminal investigations who did that case. Chainalysis won't say that they were involved, but they were almost certainly involved. And it's the same people who are the subjects of my book who carry that out. I mean, they just truly have broken their own they records, the code. Yeah. one after another. But the one, the one, the original one you were talking about that they just announced, where the guy had it under his floorboards and everything. Why are they just announcing that now? If they did it exactly a year ago, because I think he took a he just took a plea agreement. Oh, he just okay. took so a that's guilty how we found plea. Out. Yeah, interesting. I mean, the poor guy like hacked the Silk Road in 2012. And sat on the money for ten years, and now faces like time in prison, and had to forfeit all of that money. It's yeah. a tough day, but you know what? You couldn't take like ten million of it just to like, like you had ten years. To I just mean, take take ten million out of there, do something. You also, know? maybe just like run off to some non extradition country. No, go to uh, Russia, do something. Yeah. <laughs> I think he, yeah, he was in he was in Georgia, and that's where Georgia, the country. No, the, the state. state, unfortunately for him, where mm. he, uh, yeah, where, and that's where his popcorn can full of 50,000 Bitcoins was found as well. Tough day. And I, it's actually reminding me when you say that I, I had on John Boziak, who's, he's, he was one of the biggest credit card scammers from America during the heyday of carding. And I was reminded of it when I was reading your book because Vinick, who was WME, one of the creators of uh, BTCE that we were just talking about, he was a Russian guy and it said that he got his whole start in carding. Like that's what he was. I think maybe you're thinking of uh, the, actually this is a good segue into like the next major case of the book, but the, but you're thinking of Alexander Kaz. Oh, I am. You're right. Yeah. <clears throat> you're right. Okay. So yeah, we are going to talk well, about Alphabet. But... Actually, no, I'm sorry. You're, you're, you are correct. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to just like in, inject a segue, but the, but Vinick also had a carding background. Maybe uh, I read it on both. I can't yeah, remember. They both, they both did. But then like the, um, the next like sort of major case of the book is I think of him more as like a Carter who became a, became the next dark web kingpin right so just right before we get to that though because this was a quick aside just bringing it up i talked with john a bit about the history of carding obviously and how all that blew up because credit cards obviously became a huge thing in the 90s and then as the late 90s ended and got into the 2000s and things were extremely computerized this entire industry just took off. The heyday was during the 2000s for sure, which is when he was in it. But a lot of the guys in it were from Russia and Ukraine, and that's always been like the thing. And I think if I remember correctly, the way he explained it is that the – in a similar way to how in China, for example, 
they excel at math more than us because their numeric system is much, much better. Like it's easier for a younger kid to learn the full system as opposed to us where we got to change the language at each hundred and thousand, whatever. But he was saying it's like a similar thing with the Russians and Ukrainians with coding where there's certain things in their language that are easier than to translate to being able to code something as opposed to when we learn it. I've never heard that before. I don't know. That could be. I might have um, made that up. I feel like that's I mean, what he said. But. I would just say like culturally these ex-Soviet countries have like – are they're very uh, – they have like a, his, a history of, of – of, amazing education in math computer science and science and then um a lot of poverty and that's like that is a mix that creates like incredible criminal hackers you know okay plus plus just the corruption of governments there historically is like meant that you can hack people like in the west where the money is and you know perhaps pay off the right Local guy. Oh, and they won't extradite you or anything yeah. either. There's no extradition treaties. Like, right. Um, especially in Russia, more, much more so than Ukraine today. I mean, that this is no longer true since the kind of like bifurcation of like Russian and Ukrainian <laughs> geopolitical past. Right, like, right. But uh, Russia is absolutely that story. Like, but it's interesting to note, and you know, maybe we can get into this at some point too, that like credit card theft is certainly still happening, but like, Russian cyber criminals now, since the advent of cryptocurrency, really have very much switched over to ransomware as an even more profitable kind of hacking, where you lock up, you know, as a whole network of like inside of a company or a government agency or a hospital or a school or like whatever, and it demands a cryptocurrency ransom. Right. And that's actually like a much faster way to get paid for your hacking. Uh, it's a much more disruptive and like, you know, truly dangerous and um, terrible for society form of hacking, even than credit card fraud, I would say. But you don't have to like uh, figure out what to do with all these credit cards, figure out how to use them for fraud. You just get paid by the victim right away. And what we now know is a traceable transaction. Yeah. So that... Um, I feel like I'm skipping ahead in the story. It's okay. Uh, but but uh, I do try to, in the book, you know, examine, like, if cryptocurrency is so traceable, why is it that ransomware remains? This is sort of the, like, near the end of the book. Like, why does it remain this scourge on society? I mean, I'm sure you're, like, aware of some of the, I mean, yeah. everybody has seen, like, the ways that it's just been, like, this plague where, like, one company after another coughs up like millions and millions of dollars in extortion payments just to try to keep doing business i mean the the biggest example was colonial pipeline that's the one ever like the most disruptive where this company that controls a pipeline that distributes gasoline to like the whole eastern seaboard was hit by ransomware and uh they had to shut down the pipeline essentially and that caused like this fuel crunch and huge disruption across the east coast and uh turns out that like they actually even had paid the ransom they paid these hackers five million dollars that is one case actually where the fbi was able with chain analysis's help by the way to follow the money figure out where it was and recover millions of dollars of it not the whole amount they haven't really said how that was possible the the, the problem is that even if you can follow the money if it goes beyond 
U.S. borders, or if the hackers themselves are in Russia, you're still stuck. Like you, that just means that you can watch yourself getting robbed, see <laughs> yeah. where the the getaway car went to, but it's totally beyond your reach. You know, like the tracing alone is not always enough. Even with Alexander Vinnik, the Russian guy, like convicted of being of his involvement in the Mt. Gox theft. He only got caught because he went on vacation with his family to Greece, and that's where he was arrested and extradited from. Right. So, like, if you if they're smart enough to like stay in a non extradition country and not go on vacation in like the wrong place, then they're untouchable, and like tracing is not enough. That's why I think they don't care about being caught. Essentially, that's interesting though. But like, what about like the North Korean government hackers? Like that's another they... example, I think of like they're you know they're not. Likely based most of the time in North Korea. They're based in China, um, usually is what I'm told. But um, but again, there's no extradition treaty with China. Then China is supportive enough of North Korea that they're not going to, um, you know, hand over North Korean hackers. Even though it is very often possible, I think, to trace these mass. North Korea doesn't use ransomware attacks most of the time. They just steal massive amounts of cryptocurrency, billions of dollars worth of it. Uh, per you know, on a yearly basis these days, and they're using that to fund you know horrific things in their, the Kim regime, including like you know their nuclear weapons development, and that can be traced. And Chainalysis has can follow that money, but you can't do anything about it. Because right? They don't care. They're just, it's purely transactional. They're looking to get in, get their money, and then they don't care if you catch them. They already have the money. Right, and and you can't. You can't extradite them. You can't no. lay hands on them. So you can follow the money, but that just again tells you exactly how badly you're being robbed and like how much um, all of these cryptocurrency companies are accidentally funding the development of nuclear weapons in <laughs> North Korea. You know, it's it doesn't solve the problem. So you know, that's just to say that like tracing is not a silver bullet. Like it's it, it seems extremely powerful for actually identifying the culprit, but. Sometimes the culprit can't be caught still. It's a geographical problem at the end of the day. Absolutely. And a yeah. geopolitical problem. Yeah. Interesting. So we left off, though, with the actual outline of some of the things in the book because there there's a ton in the book that we're just not going to get to today and people are going to have to buy it. Again, check out the link in the description, Tracers in the Dark. But the the Vinick story kind of got left off because, again, he wasn't in those – extradite the extraditable countries and whatever and so they knew who he was but they couldn't really do anything about it they'd under they'd uncovered essentially who was behind the mount gox hack but in the meantime after silk road goes offline in 2013 you had mentioned there was like silk road 2 and some of the people who had been involved in silk road launched at least that pl platform and maybe another one in the year afterward, but they were quickly caught because all the data on who they were was on Russ was on Ross's and, laptop, and also actually because there was another vulnerability in Tor. That one was like confirmed, and in 2014, Ooh. that was used in like another kind of like just roundup of uh, a bunch of dark websites. Not a lot in a lot of cases. The government the, found a vulnerability. Essentially, you're saying it was actually like this group of researchers at Carnegie Mellon who then gave it to the government. Uh, is Son of a bitch, pretty really? well confirmed. Yeah. And in that case, like it, it, the um, a lot of those dark web drug markets taken down with that vulnerability, were, it was just a server that was found, and it wasn't the actual administrators. Nobody was like arrested and jailed as, in many of those cases, as far as I know. But with the Silk Road two, they were in part because 
their identifying information was on Ross Ulbricht's laptop. Okay, so they because they knew who they were, they were able to get them. But the other ones, they were able to at least get in there through a vulnerability and shut down. Right. However, there was one that rose up that went beyond the scope of Silk Road. Silk Road, as we laid out, did mostly drugs. It had some guns on there as well, some hacking tools a little bit. And that was pretty much it for, for right. the most part. So like the you know, as we as we were just talking about, Russell Briggs like life sentence was meant to deter the next dark web drug lord but that did not work and silk road 2 popped up then another site called like evolution took over and then evolution actually ran ran off with everybody's money just to show their lack of sort of you know dread pirate roberts principles if you want to describe them that way and then that site was replaced by another one which went offline and then the real subject of like our of this of really, really like the centerpiece case in some ways of the book uh this market comes online called Alpha Bay that would eventually grow to be 10 times the size of the Silk Road transacting like millions of dollars of drugs a day. But the interesting thing that, you know, I, uh, we were getting at is that like Alpha Bay, what sort of got its start uh, as a Carter dark web site mm, like it was yeah. it was founded by this guy alpha o2 nobody knew who that was, that was but his username but alpha o2 uh was a known sort of notorious credit card fraudster who had even published like a guide to credit card fraud but then <laughs> alpha o2's kind of like big idea was to combine the the dark web sphere of credit card fraud and and drugs into one massive market which was which would become alpha bay and, and what the, year is this approximately? This was, so Alpha Bay launched, I guess, in, let's see, was it 2015? I'll check. It was 20. That sounds right. That I, sounds right. For a long time, it was not like particularly distinguished. It was only in late 2016 or around like actually the middle of 2016 that Alpha Bay became the biggest dark web drug market when like other sites were going offline. Yeah, it says it, this is straight off Wikipedia, it says it reportedly launched in September 2014, pre-launched in November 2014, and officially launched December 22nd, 2014. So roughly the end of 2014. Right, but then, so it, it launched, uh, but was not distinguished for years. And then only after the these other sites went offline did it kind of begin to grow, not only into the biggest dark web market at the time, but the biggest dark web market ever. Mm. I think it was around mid-2016 that it surpassed even the peak size of the Silk Road and was still growing. And at this point, like, law enforcement is looking at this site. I mean, they, they've taken down the Silk Road, they've taken down all these other sites, but this one seemed somehow to, like, not have made those mistakes. Like, it didn't have the vulnerabilities, like... Um, the uh, and and essentially Alpha O2 began to seem like this kind of potentially untouchable figure. Like I've heard this from prosecutors and, and investigators. Like there was this real fear that maybe this time they've encountered somebody who they cannot reach. And it, and it was has a lot to do with what we were just talking about. Alpha O2 gave this impression of being Russian. He there were no real rules on Alpha Bay except like no child porn, no child sexual abuse materials, no actually no murder for hire allowed either. But otherwise, anything goes. There was no victimless crime here. Like you could sell people stolen data. Like you know that was a huge part of the yes. business. Yeah. Um, but you could not sell the stolen data of Russians or people from the former Soviet Union. That was a rule on the site, and it seems like that was a kind of don't shit where you sleep 
principle, yes. like yes. this must be based in Russia. And Alpha O2 would even sign off his messages with a Russian sign-off, like be safe mm. brothers, but written in Cyrillic Russian. And so there was this fear that, oh, this guy is, what if he is in Russia and the site is hosted in Russia and will never be able to reach past that kind of, as you said, like geopolitical Do, boundary. Does Russia ever... Well, not now, obviously, given everything that's going on. But prior to invading Ukraine, do those conversations at least happen, though? Like, is it possible that if, if someone's caught on either end, U.S. or Russia, that we have examples of where people did get sent from one to the other? I think, like, uh, there, there was a, a, a period, I think, when there was cooperation. And then my um, a friend... Patrick Howell O'Neill wrote a great piece, I think for MIT Tech Review, about a case where, maybe the first case where it kind of all fell apart and like um, the American, probably I think the FBI, sorry, this is not my story, but I identified these like notorious Russian cyber criminals and were trying to get the Russians to cooperate in extraditing them. And um, they, Oh my God, what's this called? Operation, uh, this is like 20... 2011, 2012, 2013, something like that. I can't remember the dates. This was but... this was the thing where John got caught, like for the final time, because there was there was a there was a joint, and we were laughing because this would never happen today. But there was a joint operation, FSB, FBI, somebody else, and they were taking down specifically like the international carding industry. I'm not sure if this is if it's the same case. It could be, it could be, but the the. Uh... In this story, at least, this is one where it seemed like the FSB was cooperating, and then they essentially let the cyber criminals like get get away from right under their noses. And the Americans had like gone as far as like traveling to Russia to get these guys, and and in in some ways like put the nail in the coffin of like any notion of cooperation with Russian law enforcement. But that's a historical story that I I didn't tell and. Everybody should check out Patrick Howell O'Neill's story. Patrick Howell O'Neill. Where'd you say he wrote that again? I think it was MIT Tech Review. O'Neill, MIT Tech Review, Russia, U.S. Carding. Let's see if it, we can pull it up. I'm not sure it was carding. It may have been like a different kind of hacking, but yeah, I, I can't, I can't find it right now. So we'll, we'll have to well, look that yeah, up later. I can but... send you a link. You can put it in the notes yeah, or please, whatever you like. Please, yeah, that'd be great. But yeah, there was this notion that Alpha O2, this guy must be Russian, and therefore we'll never get him. And, uh, you know, people like talked about him as like this one prosecutor described him, his, his like impression of Alpha O2 at the time as like the Michael Jordan of the dark <laughs> web. Like what if this guy is just so smart and so careful that we just will never catch up with him. Um, and it was like around that time that they got their first real tip that was kind of, uh, the beginning of that. Al Alpha and how did case. that happen? What so, was the tip? yeah, so it's. Um, it was very much like what happened to Ross Ulbricht in a way. In the very first days that Alpha Bay was online, it turned out, 2014, as you just looked up, um, years earlier, before anybody really cared about Alpha Bay because it was just one of many of these dark web sites. If you signed up for the user forum on, on Alpha Bay, you would get a welcome email. And that welcome email's metadata included this email address that it should not have included, which was pimpalex91 at hotmail.com. <laughs> and... Uh, some tipster, some some like dark web sleuth had signed up in those first days before this thing was fixed, and it was fixed very quickly, um, and just kept that email 
for years as Alphabay grew into the biggest dark web market ever. And then just before Thanksgiving of 2016, tipped off the, the, the DEA, um, sent this tip to like, of all places, like a DEA agent in Fresno. Voluntarily? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know who the tipster is. I've never, um, that's been very like carefully kept from me. I think that of course, like makes sense. Uh, law enforcement agencies don't want to reveal the identities of anonymous tipsters. Um, but yeah, I don't know what that person's motivation was. Uh, but they, that was the first kind of crack. And it, and that was the guy, Robert Miller, he sent that to in Fresno. Right. I mean, Robert Miller is also a pseudonym for a DEA agent um, who didn't want me to use okay, his real name. So but yeah, we'll, name, we'll call but... him Robert Miller. And um, he had done some sort of like pretty rudimentary dark web cases where he'd busted some dealers, essentially. Um, Fresno, the Fresno office of the DEA and, and the prosecutor there had like a dark web task force and they had done some <clears throat> pretty clever but small scale things like uh, using mistakes that dealers had made to identify them and like then tracking them down and but they they weren't they never expected that they would be the ones to go after the kingpin of alpha bay right. um and but as they like like kind of scoured the web with this email address that they now had pimpalex91 at hotmail.com <laughs> they began to find this you know the this trail that alexander cause had left he um he had used this email address, for instance, on like a Canadian social media site, and they could see that he had been this like hip hop uh, sort of wannabe as a teenager. He was from French Canada, from Quebec. Mm. And then they followed it further. They found that they found his LinkedIn page where um, they could see that he kind of cleaned up, become a, a web developer, had his own web web development company, a front company. Yeah, right. Eventually, that would be revealed. And then they found his fiance's social media and saw that he actually now lived in Bangkok, had a Lamborghini Aventador, seemed to own a villa in Phuket. Like, he owned several places, right? I think. He I had mean, like eventually, a... they tracked all of this and they found that he owns like property in Antigua, Barbuda, and like Granada and Cyprus. <laughs> I mean, he was it's not like Ross Ulbricht. No, he was he was enjoying like his dark web like profits in a way that Ross Ulbricht never did. Um, but even then, like they did not, they weren't, I mean, it, yes, like a web developer, like owning a Lamborghini is not like the expected, you know, that's, that seems suspicious and they sure. had this email address, but, um, even so like they wondered, like, could they, were they being set up? Like, uh, they, they had to ask themselves, the agents and prosecutors in Fresno, like, what if this tipster has even set us up? Like, what if cause is being frames and like to take the fall? for alpha o2 yeah because it's kind of that was the thing about this it was almost strikingly easy to get there exactly that like and often when something is that easy like it does seem like it must be a setup mm. and i think that they felt that too and so that's that is when cryptocurrency becomes part of the story again and it actually was happening like in a totally different thread in a different place like the Fresno office had no idea how to trace cryptocurrency in that way. But at the same time as they were chasing this, like, too good to be true kind of lead, uh, it happened that these two FBI analysts in Washington, D.C., who 
asked me to call them just Ali and Aaron, not no last names, um, were also trying to find the kingpin of Alpha Bay and using cryptocurrency tracing. And ch Chainalysis too, of course, like by this point, every Chainalysis customer is like asking them, can you help us to, to at least like chart out what part of the blockchain is being used, what it belongs mm. to Alphabet. Like uh, which of these millions and hundreds of millions of addresses at this point are Alphabet addresses. And um, Chainalysis was like devoting years of work to this. They, this was not easy. Like Chain Alphabet had learned from the Silk Road, like the, in many ways, the, the Silk Road would like take everybody's transactions like mine and that experiment that I did and pull them together into like a few addresses. So that made it easy using like the same multi-input transaction trick that Sarah Micklejohn came up with. You could see that all those addresses must belong to the Silk Road, but Alphabet never did that. And in fact, Alphabet advertised to its users that it, it very cleverly tumbled and mixed their coins. And actually what the real trick was that it kept them all in these distributed addresses, never pooling them into one big account. Mm. And that made it very difficult to say like that any particular address was an Alphabet address. So they were hypothetically at first glance here finding a way around that those tracing methods. Right. I mean, the cat and mouse game had advanced for sure. And Chainalysis had to spend like years trying to figure out like what the fingerprints of Alphabet were on the blockchain and, and never told me actually even what most of those were, but they gave me like a, an example, which was that Alphabet, uh, essentially like had a fee structure. When you send Bitcoins, you can like pay a fee and the bigger the fee, the faster your transaction is confirmed by the whole Bitcoin network. And Alphabet, it turned out, had this particular fee structure where like the bigger the payment you were making, whatever drug deal you were doing, um, the bigger the fee was. And this was a particular like mm. sliding scale that Chainalysis figured out would serve as a kind of fingerprint that they could use to, I think probably one of many, to to start to like build out the, the picture of which addresses belonged to Alphabet. Uh, and by like uh, late 2016, they, they had like 2.5 million addresses that they had determined belonged to Alphabet. And when you say belonged to Alphabet... Well, exactly. They belonged to like buyers or right. sellers or administrators uh, on Alphabet. And how big was the ecosystem at that point? Because I know... I think it was like within a year, Alphabet's daily revenues were higher than Silk Road's was ever at its peak or something. But like how many users did they have roughly? You know, I don't, uh, they, by the numbers that I have in my head are like that by, um, is more like daily transactions. The Silk Road at its peak, I forget exactly how much, was doing like hundreds of thousands, like <clears throat> mid, you know, like three or 400,000, I think, a day mm. in transactions. By mid-2016, Alphabet had surpassed that. And then mm. by mid-2017, they were doing millions of dollars a day. Like, um, And I, I do know that by mid-2017 also, flashing, you know, this is like skipping ahead a bit, they had 10 times as many users as the Silk Road had, like registered <sighs> users. Uh, so... According to the FBI's like <clears throat> numbers, anyway. So yeah, this was like a um, you know, it it is just like another level of, and in fact, the arguably 
the dark web drug trade, the dark web black market has never even equaled that sense, um, kind of depending on like exactly whose measurements and how you measure it. Um, Alphabet was truly like a, a, a singularity. Um, but right. So, I mean, if you're if picking up where I left off, yeah, like yeah, please. Alphabet, um, chain analysis had, had figured out the Alphabet cluster more or less, but then you still have to trace, you have to figure out who Alpha O2 is within that cluster and then trace out his money to a real person's name. And that is what Aaron and Ali, these two FBI analysts figured out how to do. And they use, so if I remember what you said at first there, they figured it out, but they used chain analysis to like confirm it all for them or like get well, them all the way. Chain analysis allows you to follow the money, but to figure out whose money to look at, they had to come up with their own clever tricks. And um, there, the, it was really, I think it was Ali's idea. Um, and that was that, what if we like look at all of these sums that we know are associated with Alpha Bay and you remember that I mentioned like a, one of the earlier markets had pulled off an exit scam where the administrators like run off with everybody's money. Yes. Um, they realized that whenever an exit scam happens, that spooks the whole dark web. Like everybody pulls out their money from whatever market they're on because they they realize and they're like constantly telling each other, everybody in the forums is like, never store more money on the market than you're about to spend because it can just be taken by the administrator. And the only person who would not be spooked by these exit scams would be an administrator himself. Like the boss doesn't have to worry about an exit scam. He is the one who pulls off the exit scam. Right, right, right. So what if they thought, like, what if we look at, you know, across this, all of these addresses and find like a cluster within the cluster of like a large amount of money that sat unmoved even as exit scams occurred. And we just start looking at those. And soon they they did find a cluster that seemed like really suspiciously large, had sat unmoved for, you know, during exit scams. And then they started to trace out the tendrils of that money to see where it might hit an exchange. And they actually uh, got as far as like tracing it to an exchange before they got, they heard the tip that Alexander Kaz was the suspect for Alpha O2. Mm. And it was... After they had, they had sent out the subpoena, they heard Alexander Kaz's name. And through their grapevine. Through their own grapevine, okay. through law enforcement. And only after that did they get back the results of the subpoena, which revealed that it was Alexander Kaz, that they cashed out that money, that their technique had worked, and that they essentially confirmed Alpha O2 is this guy, Alexander Kaz, this like Lamborghini-driving uh, French-Canadian eccentric dude in in bangkok yeah so he's in a foreign nation would did bangkok have extradition stuff with very the much US? so it yeah. turns out yeah like <clears throat> i think um alexander cause like probably i don't know why he went to bangkok really maybe just because it's nice there but but like he, <laughs> he it was the opposite of it turns out like the non-extradition treaty russian haven that they thought he was in Bangkok, it turns out, is like uh, very friendly with the DEA, and they have a, they have a lot of people on the ground there. Yes, like, very much so. And like in the DEA office in Bangkok, I would learn uh, when I visited, even was is like the the center for all East Asian operations for the DEA, which hmm. has more I, I think more foreign agents than any other U.S. law enforcement agency. 
the DA has like a huge presence abroad, but it's but in particular in Bangkok. What about do other agencies share a similar presence in Bangkok as the DA? I'm not sure, but like the the what I learned just by you know um, this like little capsule history when I talked to the agents there and visited for the or you know when I was reporting all this out is that <clears throat> that golden triangle of I think it's like what is it? It's, Uh, Thailand and Myanmar and maybe China, southern China, had become this source of heroin that was that actually we we all like I think have heard of Vietnam vets who became addicted to heroin. Yes, in many cases that like white China heroin was coming from the Golden Triangle. Vietnam, you know, Vietnam veterans would get addicted during wartime in the sixties and seventies yeah. and. And so, before the DEA, it was even created. This um, I forget what the precursor, like the earlier agency that would become the DEA, was called. They focused on Bangkok because that was where a lot of this heroin that was addicting, getting Americans addicted, was coming from. So mm. that was like one of their first priorities as an agency. I just you know kind of learned this like from uh, just as I like dug a little bit into the D, the history there but yeah and they um, were smuggling it out too that was the other problem like absolutely. that's how frank lucas filled all the streets in new york with with heroin he was bringing it in i believe it was in like caskets that's right that's right from vietnam yeah, i'd forgotten that story but definitely like this white china like this this golden triangle region was a huge source i think of like more than half of all opiates at the time i think it was then surpassed you know by like afghanistan and whatever mm. but um nonetheless like Cause was in the wrong place. Like this was the opposite of a non-extradition country, um, but it was still like he he was a very like smart guy. And the story I tell in the book, like it, it's uh, in some it's one of the like more detailed cases because he took really smart security measures. He was he knew better than to. I mean, you could tell that Alpha Bay was better at like obfuscating his cryptocurrency, mm. despite the fact that that was still used to confirm his identity. But then also he had learned from like the from Ross Ulbricht, you don't work on your laptop in a public place. And he had full disk encryption on his laptop, but never even opened it outside of his home. So that was like a huge challenge in trying to take him down. That would be that eventually like led to this incredibly elaborate sting operation where they knew that they had to not only grab his laptop, but grab it in an open state in his home. In his home. Yeah. Wow. So how did, so when, what was it, Aaron and who was the other pseudonym? Allie and Aaron, yes. Allie and Aaron FBI at the agents. FBI. So when they traced it back to him, and then they confirmed that on another investigation out of Fresno due to, with the DEA due to a tip-off, they also had traced it back to him. Obviously, now they know they have their boogeyman, quote-unquote, who's Alpha O2. This is what, like, End of twenty sixteen ish, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so how long until they had to do the sting, and like, what was the planning? Like, what was the full story there? Like, how did that go down? Well, I should say that even in the midst of this, there was this other case that, that Fresno and um, DC, those two branches, like, did kind of join forces. But then at the same time, I mean, this case is so like epic and and it's kind of global scope. But the these Dutch agents were tracking the second biggest dark web market ever, mm. used cryptocurrency tracing to find the servers of that market, which was called Hansa, and hatched this idea. I mean, the Dutch are like in truly 
like very aggressive in their law enforcement's uh, operations like this. They came up with a plan to not just take down the second biggest dark web market, but to take it over, to run it themselves undercover. And when they found out that the Americans were going after the biggest dark web market, Alphabet, they essentially proposed that they join forces and, and, and mm. create this one-two punch, this incredibly like uh, ambitious thing where they would take down together, take down Alphabet, the biggest dark web market, and then secretly control the second biggest market so that all of the refugees from Alphabet would flow into Hansa. Oh, they get like a net on the back end. While That's it was genius. under their control, and they would be able to surveil and identify all of Alphabet's users uh, on Hansa, the second biggest market that they were secretly controlling. So that is the, that they, this plan like took a little while to coordinate and, and hatch, but then, um, then there's still like the, as I was saying, like the, the challenge was how do they get cause, like how cause the Alpha O2 and catch him red-handed in the same way that Ross Ulbricht was. Right. And one of the, the tactics that really allowed them to do this was that they figured out that Kaz had a third alter ego as a kind on this kind of pickup artist alpha male forum <laughs> um, <clears throat> where he was known as Romeo. He was like a fan of raw dogging. As, and that was <laughs> unfortunate. <clears throat> Excuse me for like explaining all this. But, no, you can say it's um, a rated R show. You can say what you want. That's funny. And he was like, like just absolutely live blogging his sex life on this mm. on this like alpha male pretty how, gross forum how'd they figure out that was him it you know it's interesting um i don't know actually know how they initially i mean the, the, uh, this romeo character this other pseudonym was like sort of bragging about his like living large in bangkok having a lot of cryptocurrency mm having a web development firm, which was the front company. So there you go. all these like things kind of pointed to him. But then, as always, it's about following the money. In this case, he um, it turns out that Cause was paying for a uh, premium account on Rouge V. And they, <laughs> so they subpoenaed his PayPal account, found that he was paying for this account, and, and that Romeo, mm. Alpha O2, Alexander Cause, they're all one person. And that actually, aside from just like, you know, the fascination of like law enforcement agents at the DEA and FBI, like pouring over this, the details of this guy's sex life. It also, he brags as Romeo about his laptop encryption and how he like, you know, has done this as like his perfect OPSEC operational security. And, but then also the, as Romeo, you could see when he was online because Rush V, this forum, uh, has like an icon next to every username, and it's you know if it's green, that means they're active at that moment. So the DEA actually was like a, a DEA agent in Bangkok figured this out. She was became it's Jen Sanchez, exactly Jen Sanchez, who was like the the kind of most like I don't know most deeply involved uh, DEA agent in Bangkok. Perhaps um, her boss Will Guzman was like part of the case as well, but she was the one who figured out if you that you can see when he's online, and that means you can see when his laptop is open. It turns out so that was a huge. I mean, this like, you know, I think that caused probably the Dread Pirate Roberts had like this public persona. Um, he loved to to spout all this political philosophy and stuff, and sort of soak up the adulation of the Silk Road community. 
because was not like that with Alpha Bay. He was very much like all business with his drug market. So I think he needed an outlet to sort of like show off, and mm. and that was unfortunately for him like this essentially like a sex forum where he just bragged about all of the all of the Thai women that he was picking up at his Lamborghini and sleeping with like on uh, in these extramarital affairs. Always comes back to the pride, man. Some way or another, comes back to pride it's like and hubris yep. is like the downfall of all of these guys and. Alpha O2 was so careful, but Romeo was like not. You know, his other alter ego was where he, he truly kind of uh, got caught in a sense because that allowed them to trace his movements. They could, they could like uh, see that he would like basically, they would like follow him physically, see that um, he would like pick up somebody in his Lamborghini and take them to his second home or to like a love motel. And then they would see him like live blogging the sex that he'd had the next day. So <laughs> all this stuff. So um, that allowed them to hatch this plan that uh, involves like half a dozen undercover agents, many of most of whom were Thai. The Thai police and the Thais, like equivalent of the DEA, was hugely involved in this too. Um, so on July 5th of 2017, they assembled this whole kind of undercover operation with, with somebody pretending to be a gardener, somebody pretending to be like an electrician working on a telephone pole. Um, and then an American DEA agent, the one, uh, Will Guzman, who I just mentioned, was pretending to be like shopping for real estate with his Thai wife at a, the house next door, all of this. And then this this other couple, two women, undercover Thai female agents who were uh, pretending to be like just having taken a wrong turn down to the cul-de-sac where Kaz's house was. I mean, all of this is happening at the same time. It's kind of ridiculous. Um, they uh, drive this Toyota Camry down the cul-de-sac and then pretend that they're lost and are trying to turn around and then crash the their Camry into Kaz's front gate, which is all a ruse designed to get his attention, to pull him out of his house and hopefully get him to leave his laptop open. And they do this, of course, when they can see that green icon on yeah. Rushvi is active. Like they know he's logged, he's he's there. Um, but at the same time, by the way, I didn't even tell this like branch of the investigation, but they had to identify the Alpha Bay server, which they did. See, this is actually Tigrin Gambarian and Chain Analysis who did this. Back at the IRS. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Who like came up with this still secret technique to identify the alphabet server, which they are now uh, trying to like access an image. Maybe we can come back to like the technique they use, but the, however they did it, they they found that it was in Lithuania. They have agents in Lithuania at the same time who can see that Kaz is logged in to the server and then accidentally pull it off. They actually accidentally crash the server as they're like examining it. And this is prior, obviously. This to happens the sting. just minutes before the 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 whole sting that they're planning. Did the, so, wait, wait, wait? Were these guys? It was was Tigran and Chainalysis aware that the sting was going down? Definitely. I mean, okay. Because um, right, I know they were at a separate organization. Initially, though. like they um, when they found the server, when they used the secret technique, Chainalysis had no idea that the bust was planned for just days. Uh, away. Okay, so but they, okay. By, by this time, uh, by July fifth, it's all coordinated. 
Chainalysis is no longer involved, but they help to find the IP address of the server. So, uh, so they unintentionally crashed this, obviously. Exactly, and and they and they are now thinking, oh my god, like cause he's going to know something's up. He's just going to shut his laptop lid, and that'll be enough for us to be screwed, essentially. That hold on, real quick though, that way that they found in there, that secret way that they're not sharing, is this another potential government warrantless problem? It's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I spent a lot of the <clears throat> the reporting like of this book trying to figure out that secret technique, and I I do explain what I'm pretty sure it was at the end of the book. Um, whether it was illegal, like I haven't really. So first of all, Kaz is a Canadian. Does that you know Kaz is Canadian? He's in Bangkok. The server is in Lithuania. Mm-hmm. Could they catch him with this? If, if, even if he were American, would he not face that same catch twenty two oh, as Ross Ulbricht? Like mm. he's got to claim it's his server to have any privacy rights to it. I mean, it's this, it's a weird um, like paradox that you can catch these people in. But also the fact that Cause is a Canadian living in Bangkok, I'm not sure he has like that the the U.S. law enforcement has to get a warrant for his server i don't know how that works because then if they try him out of the u.s though isn't he i don't know um that's a law question legal question it ultimately wouldn't matter for wouldn't matter we'll we'll get to that but um but yeah people can read that in your book that part the the rest yeah that's that's fine i just wanted to know if there was something possibly there it's both like uh it's both like a good i don't know kind of reveal but also um maybe we shouldn't spoil it but it's also like a bit of a technical story so but like i, I did i think i did figure out what they did and that's the kind of like surprise reveal at the end of the book i actually just in the very last phase of the reporting i think i like did i mentioned a leak from chain analysis earlier and that is how i figured that secret technique out as well okay. but but anyway, they crashed this server right before this is going, minutes before this is supposed right. to go down. So then everybody, this whole team, and there's like six undercover agents on the on Kaz's block surrounding his house in different ways. Um, like the the DEA agent and the, his fake wife are in the house. They're like, they've got eyes on his house um, as they pretend to shop. Like the DEA agent is like trying to distract the real estate agent while his partner is upstairs like, you know, doing surveillance on Kaz's home. And then they have a, a feed of, like, like a real-time video feed um, from the from the DEA agent's car, from the Toyota Camry also. So there's a whole war room of agents and prosecutors, mm. Americans, who are a few miles away in Bangkok watching all of this unfold. And they're like, oh, shit, the server is down. You need to take him now. And... That's when these two agents in the Camry crash it into Kaz's gate, and that's kind of like the beginning of the of this like very quick succession of events. Where first it didn't work. I mean, Kaz, you, they could see that he opens like the window of his bedroom slightly, and they're like, "Oh, we got his attention." Maybe he stepped away from his computer, but his it's his wife, who is by the way eight months pregnant, who comes down, and they have to like do this whole pantomime of like the. The undercover agent who had crashed the car was like, "Oh, I'm so sorry. Can we can we pay for the damage? Can you please get your husband to come down so I can figure this out with him?" And <laughs> and uh, and Kaz does come down in like his gym shorts and shirtless and shoeless, and uh, they go into the house. Well, at that point, 
the the fake driver for the real estate shopping couple comes out and he kind of like uh i mean it's an elaborate story but like um basically uh he kind of pretends to be helping cause with the gates but then somebody gives a signal and um the guy who was the electrician i believe starts like puts on a police vest and starts like sprinting towards cause to arrest him and at the same moment another agent who was hiding in the back seat of the real estate shopping couple's car comes out um cause as when he sees the the agent running towards him in a police uniform realizes what's going on like tries to spin around he knows he has to get back in the house to his laptop but at that point like two and then three of the agents are like wrestling with him the one who was hidden in the back seat he goes by the, the nickname m and he kind of breaks free allows the other cops to like wrestle with cause and m just knows that his job is to sprint into the house through the gate that's been like you know opened yeah up the stairs he's actually like studied the layout of the home i mean this is all you know very carefully planned and um takes steps two by two he thinks that the computer is going to be in the guest bedroom and he busts into the room it turns out that cause had like guests from canada who were sleeping in there and he wakes them <laughs> up and he's like and he's like oh sorry and he turns around goes into the into the master bedroom and finds that cause's laptop is there and still open and alive logged into alpha bay the whole case is cracked but that's that's causes arrested uh they've got his laptop he like russ Ulbricht, even had like a net worth you know spreadsheet on the computer this is like the a different kind of it's like the hubris of full disk encryption you think you can store this yeah stuff. do whatever you want yeah because you're never gonna get it but he got caught the same way pretty much it was just like that much harder because it was in his home you know um but they did get him he's taken to thai jail essentially he agrees to extradition and then uh a week after his arrest he's found dead in his jail cell alleged suicide right yeah so of course u.s law enforcement thai law enforcement say that he committed suicide they he he hung himself um his a lot of guys hanging themselves in prison these days his mother his defense attorney of course say that he was killed um what now there's a question what are they what are they getting at? Are they getting at like, okay, he was Alpha O2, but there's someone behind this whole operation or something. There's governments behind it. There's boogeymen, whatever. Nobody, I don't think anybody who would claim that Cause was murdered knows who murdered him or has even like a strong theory. But yeah, the idea is that what if like maybe Thai cops were on the take to protect him once he got caught they killed him to keep mm. him quiet maybe he did have a local partner maybe he was tied up with the mafia i mean i did hear from one of his friends that he was like cashing out bitcoins at one point through the russian mafia in bangkok hmm. i don't know Sounds i don't know cool. what that means but like um he, he he you know had like kind of liquidity problem like he had more cryptocurrency than he could deal with obviously that's what got him caught eventually that he was cashing out through exchanges too so, um, and, you know, they ultimately trace like a, more than a dozen of his exchange accounts in his name and his wife's. But, um, yeah, maybe he had like a local 
laundering partner too, and or something like that. And that person had him killed to keep him quiet. Who knows? Um, I also don't know if he was. I, I'm not claiming. I I couldn't figure it out. I went as far as like spending hours and hours with all of the Thai officials, the detectives and the agents and the um, you know the the people in this agency who like masterminded the operation to get him. I even talked to the jailers on duty, uh, and I uh, and yet I still don't know the answer to this question. They have I mean, security if, footage. They do, but it's missing about half an hour. Oh, yeah, very I convenient. See, I, this is the thing. And of course, his defense attorney says the same thing. Like, you, you're kidding me. Like, this, you've got, and I've watched and showed his defense attorney a video of the last minutes of his life where um, the, the, the ties shared with me. I mean, I didn't even know that there was going to be video in his cell, but they brought me down to, to the jail. Like, when I was interviewing the agents in this DEA equivalent office, in Bangkok, the jail is on the first floor. They brought me down to the first floor. I met the jailers. They were like, "Yep, he was right here." Like, and I can see the video, the the cameras. And so I asked them to share the video, and they they did. Along with, they shared a coroner's report as well. And yet, the video shows him, you know, uh, kind of sitting in his cell. Then you see him go off screen by the way his cell the way that this happened was that he has his cell has a small internal wall with a bathroom behind it it's like a three foot high partial wall with a little swinging door and he goes behind that door and i can you can actually see him just barely sort of messing with the towel somehow which was what was used or what suffocated him and then that clip ends and the next clip is you see Thai police and then Jen Sanchez, who we mentioned, who was like the... the On site looking at his body. Yeah, running in like in a panic, seemingly like looking over this internal wall at his dead body, which has been choked, you know, choked out by um, a towel fashioned into a noose. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I truly, uh. I, you're, you know, I appreciate that you're a skeptic. I am an agnostic on this. I don't, I did my best to like figure this out and I do not know what happens. And I, you know, his defense attorney also was like, well, taking a step back, even like his, like Jen Sanchez, the DEA agent who found his dead body. It was like, I know exactly how he did it. He turned this, he like tied his towel into a noose, uh, sort of sh like got the end of it wedged into the hinge of this three foot high internal door. And then, you know, lean forward to cut off his, his air supply. Um, the defense attorney is like, that's impossible. Nobody can, can suffocate that way. He's not even, his body is not even suspended. He's only, he, this is a noose that's three feet off the ground. Then I, I actually like did a lot of really gross, uh, grisly research into house, you know, these kind of, uh, auto, um, in many cases, like the research is based on like accidental deaths from autoerotic asphyxiation mm. and it very often happens with bodies that are not fully suspended i don't want to get into like too much about how to kill yourself but it's <laughs> but like um it's just, it's just seemed dangerous to talk about that but yeah but it but suffice to say that i was convinced by like talking to a lot of doctors even about this that that or reading the literature and like um that 
it is possible to to kill yourself this way. The fact that he was going in there and it appears based on the tape that he was playing with the towel and we have that on video makes this sound a little less suspicious and like he legitimately did. But I mean, who do I got to fuck to make sure that when someone kills themselves in prison, that doesn't happen to be the 15 minutes where the camera's not working? I know. And it's so, but I don't, it's like Thailand is not a country where police are held accountable, you know? Uh, so I can kind of imagine, and this is what I was told essentially, that the the video um, shows cause like messing with the towel, like going to the back of his cell where it's where he's hidden. And then the next action is people running in to find his body. And between those two moments, there's about half an hour where nothing happens. And the Thais say that they just deleted that because it shows nothing. <laughs> so, I mean, I think Americans hopefully would know better than to delete the evidence that, like... Apparently not. Vindicates... But... Well, yeah, exactly. But that's a different story. It's a different a story. A very different story. So, um, I don't know. I don't know what to believe, but I do. I, I don't want to like attribute to malice what might have been like ridiculous yeah, incompetence. Yeah, it could be open ended. Sure. Yeah, uh, sure. and that's where I, you know, I've left it myself. Um, but that ended the case because they had Alpha too. Like, what happened? Because he did, he did have other people on the site similarly to Silk Road who at least like reported to him, right? They have Alpha too. They took down Alpha Bay, um, and at this point, they had, as I said, like taken over the second biggest dark web market So they ever. send everyone there, the dangerous And one. just as yeah. they planned, like it worked like beautifully um, for law enforcement anyway, that thousands and thousands of refugees from Alpha Bay flooded into Hansa, the second biggest dark web market, not knowing what had happened. It was all kept secret. I mean, it was a full, I think like days before even it was clear that um, Alpha Bay had been uh, taken down by law enforcement. People thought it might be an exit scam. People thought it might just be downtime. You know, that happens with websites on the dark web in particular. And so they all flooded into Hansa and registered there. And Hansa had been turned into this just like absolute surveillance death trap for its users because it was completely top to bottom now controlled by Dutch police who were pretending, who had taken the roles of the administrators. And they proceeded to just like do every doop, 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 evil doop. trick they could think of. They had all of these users under their control. It was like um, such a, a rare situation. And they really did do everything they could think of to, you know, you're not supposed to be identifiable when you visit a dark website, even for the dark web administrators themselves. But if you turn that dark website into a trap and like change its code, yeah, they can. They they hold the keys. They yeah. can do what they want. Then you can start to set these traps for people, and that's what they did. I mean, they they uh, did things like uh, you you when you make a dark web drug deal, you are supposed to encrypt your address. But by this point, dark websites had features that would automatically, in theory, encrypt your address for you. But Hanso had been like recoded so that it would record your address before it <laughs> encrypted it, of course. And so they got everybody. They got they, they got had them all. Right. They, uh, and they they even like did a thing where they tricked all the dealers on the site into downloading this file where <laughs> there was like an icon. The uh. the Hansa icon was loaded by pulling the image from a server under Dutch control. So they 
that would like essentially reveal the IP address of everybody who opened that file, like a kind of, you know, beacon, Trojan horse. Wait, does that get their IP address even if they're using Tor? Well, that's the thing. Like they would be using Tor to visit Hansa, but then they load this, they load this file on their computer and that pulls in the image, not over Tor and therefore it reveals them. So they got like, you know, dozens and dozens of the biggest dealers on Hansa uh, who were coming from Alphabet exactly this way. They also like did a thing where they tricked everybody into uploading like new images to the site of their drugs that they were selling. And there was supposed to be like an automatic way of stripping out the metadata that includes mm. the locations sometimes of a photo. And instead, they, of course, recorded that metadata. So they like all of these different tricks were used to identify the dealers. And over the next, I mean, it's not. Did they extradite all these guys to the U.S.? All for, the dealers? Yeah. It's not really clear exactly like what the, like how uh, that, all of that data, which was collected essentially by Europol, um, the the Dutch police collected this data, then handed it over to Europol and it gets like fed into like US systems as well. And then it's just like a, a, you know, this is such a global operation. There were then like three different major busts of dark web drug dealers over the subsequent years with like all these different code names, like. I forget what they were all called, like Saboteur. They all have like Tor in in their, you know, clever um, names. And hundreds and hundreds of dealers were arrested in these. So it's not, they. I think that they almost probably purposefully obfuscated which ones were identified through the Hansa operation versus other techniques. Mm. But suffice to say that like there were, there was, you know, an enormous uh, number of takedowns that followed around the world. I mean, a lot of these people were not extradited. They were prosecuted in their own countries too. Um, just a massive success for multiple governments, though. At the it end was. Of I mean, it was also just like the biggest psyop ever performed against the dark web because that we know of. But yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, um, against in particular the dark, the drug part of the dark web markets um, because it was like you cannot even trust the people in charge of these dark web markets. Like even the the like Dread Pirate Roberts of whatever Hansa himself might be working, might be a Dutch police officer. And uh, that instilled a lot of fear. It took like a very long time for the dark web markets to recover from all of that chaos and paranoia. See, we know about like, you know, the, for example, the dirty DEA cop from, and the dirty secret service cop force and bridges from, the Silk Road case, like there's some that obviously become a part of the story, but I'm always curious with all these sites, how many people were unknowingly doing it on behalf of an organization. Like I will tell you one place my head goes with like Alpha O2 is that he was an agent for somebody doing something. Like it's very, it's possible at least, you know? Certainly. I mean, the I talked to the prosecutors and all the agents who led that case and <clears throat> I I don't know. I spent enough time with them that I don't believe they're lying when they say that they actually intended to extradite cause to the U.S. and flip him if they could. They were going to actually, they wanted to to turn Alpha Bay or, you know, at least probably take, they had already taken down Alpha Bay, but to turn Alpha O2 into an incredible informant and use that to, you know, do other kind of like stings and traps. And, but, but he was dead. So, and, and they really, saw that as a huge disappointment. I mean, I don't know if Kaz was killed or who would have killed him, but I don't believe actually that the U.S. 
DEA ends prosecutors and FBI ends um, IRS, like Tigre and Gambarian, any of them would have wanted him dead. They, sure, want, they sure. wanted him on yeah. Team USA, as they say. That actually makes sense. Yeah. So it could have been with someone else. But you're, but you're absolutely right that like they, they wanted him to be the kind yeah. of asset that you're talking about. But unfortunately for everyone, uh, he died. Yeah. And so as you say, like, you know, was there something extra that was not legal about like the way that they got to his server? Maybe that might have come up at trial, but he never had a trial. He was dead. That's just it. And, and it's one of those. It's like, we're never going to know now. Because, like, you can't talk to a dead guy, but that was a crazy takedown they had and everything. And and one, one of the things from your book we're not really going to get deep into today because we're coming up on the end here. But a, another one that was a huge standout in there was the whole case against, like, the – I forget what the new term is for now, but the term we child used to Child sexual know is, abuse materials, right, yeah. So videos, what we yeah. know is child porn when yeah, they talk yeah. about it in, in the media. But they were able to use – very short, long story short here, they were able to use cryptocurrency tracing techniques to be able to get these guys, including you, you open your book with a, with an example of, of a teacher in Atlanta, Georgia, who was vice principal, who was caught using this method, essentially looking, he had collections of child porn. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, he actually was later charged that, that too. Yeah. That, vice principal was charged with actual abuse of, of kids in his school. And this case, which again, this is Tigran Gambarian at the IRS, who on his way home from Bangkok, like calls up Chainalysis to see like, do they have any new leads? Chainalysis tips him off to this site called Welcome to Video, which would turn out to be not only the biggest child sexual abuse video market on the dark web, but also one that that actually uses cryptocurrency, which is pretty, which is unusual, actually. Usually these sites kind of trade, people trade videos, essentially. And that allowed them, IRS and Chainalysis, to trace out the entire network. And I know we're coming up to the end, so I'll just summarize that they they arrested 337 Whew. uploaders, well, downloaders, abusers of children around the world and rescued 23 kids. I, you know, I don't know the details of those uh, they wouldn't tell me, like, uh, of course, for like the sake of the victims, like the, most of those stories. I, I, I tell sure, one, I tell sure. one story in the book, but that's like a, um, you know, that there's no, that is in some ways like the, the incredible proof of the power of this technique that they were able to, with cryptocurrency tracing alone in almost every case, identify all of these pretty abhorrent. Individuals. Well, that's great that they were able to do that with that. That's just I, I don't. Well, it's it's true. That's I mean, one of those I just can't fathom. I don't it's, know. It's it is. There's, of course, I wasn't. I didn't want to and could not legally look at the materials, but uh, on this site and it was taken down. But I talked to all of the. I mean, IRS agents are not equipped either to like look at this stuff, but they had to. Tigrian Gambarian and his partner in that case, Christian uh, Chesky, they were thrown into the deep end. Like these are financial investigators who have never looked at this stuff before and That's had no Ugh. idea what they were getting into and were traumatized. I mean, like... I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. It's that. definitely like a part of... Even as I have covered this stuff for this world of hackers and the dark web for 15 years or whatever, and I have never... I've always kind of like averted my gaze from that world and uh, because it's just so dark. It's like a part... A, the darker part of the dark web than I have ever wanted to 
even tell the story of, and I just had to here, but it's also it has a happy ending, and it's like、um, an incredible kind of climax to this series of cases. Yeah, yeah, and it's I'm I'm glad you told that story too because it's you know it, luckily most of us can't fathom that world, but it's not two people in it. That's the really scary thing. There are there are a lot of people around the world who are in that kind of shit, and the internet has provided an unfortunate. Safe haven for them to be able to engage in this in a way that the world has never seen, and so you know any way that that can be caught in in this way, if it's done through cryptocurrency, sounds great to me. I mean, it's 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 a it it absolutely is.、Uh, it's like totally unambiguously a, a, a righteous takedown that one. But then you do, I do kind of like try in the book too to to even after all of that to like. To ask the question, like, is this actually a good thing for the world? That it turned out、mm. that, like, what was supposed to be almost like an escape valve from financial surveillance turned out to be the opposite. Like,、uh, financial surveillance is just so pervasive; it's so hard to use money privately. And Bitcoin was meant to offer that, and instead, it's served as a trap for everybody, whether they are like child abusers or whether they're like. Dissidents or activists or people, yeah, trying to might not be the worst. Exactly, people who、yeah. actually might need privacy.、Yeah. Um, you know, there's just two, always two sides to this. It's like hard to see that other side once you've seen the the, the incredibly like e- truly evil ways that this technology was. Tr- people were trying to use it, but then there are like legitimate reasons to try to keep your money private, and、yeah. uh, it's 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 not an entirely good feeling to. Come to the conclusion that Bitcoin is not that; it's the opposite of it. Well, maybe the the only appropriate last question is for you: just having done not only all the work on this book, but having lived among this world and reported in it for now over a decade. You know, where do you see? Obviously, like we're talking when there's an enormous bear market, and we just had the whole FTX blow up and all that. It's a whole separate conversation, but where do you see cryptocurrency going? Do you think there's something else that'll come up to replace it, or do you think that the ecosystem we've seen get built will eventually become a monetary system? Well, I think that, like, I don't know. There, there are maybe like three different branches of of like where things are going. There's <clears throat> the kind of civilized, like, cryptocurrency has mostly become very civilized, like. It's become very legitimate, and this notion that it's like a a tool for crime. All money is. I mean, it's a smaller and smaller percentage of all、yeah. cryptocurrency is used for crime, but actually, a larger and larger absolute amounts of cryptocurrency is involved in crime. It's still growing in that sense, but that's the kind of second fork that I'm talking about, which is that、uh, largely that is happening thanks to like Russian cyber criminals. Un- untouchable people in Russia or North Korea who can be traced but can't be stopped, you know.、Mm. And then there is this third, like, very interesting thing that's happening. I think worth mentioning, which is something like Zcash. Like the dream of the cypherpunks, where we started this whole conversation, is still alive. Of like, what if we can still create a technology for truly untraceable payments? And Zcash may be that, and then we've opened a whole new can of worms, which is a a digital cash for the internet that whose promises of privacy and untraceability hold up. And then where are we? Like, then what about 
those abhorrent markets for yeah. child abuse. Like, what about the drug trade? It's going to be, you know, it'll be good for privacy. It'll be, it'll be, I don't know, very dangerous in other ways. And that world has never existed. And, you know, it's a, we're just like on the edge of a very uh, unknowable future. Well, there are good and bad people in the world and there always will be. And it's, some of it's really heavy to think about because if you could wave a wand and just make everyone good, obviously, if you're a good person, you would. But there there are questions certainly to ask as far as like what what is the biggest net good? You know, is the is the biggest net good not necessarily on the side of the government being able to trace where every single thing goes, especially with a digital footprint in a new world? Could be that it's on the other side of that. And the other side of that holds bad because then when you give privacy, bad people do bad things. I I I, I don't know. That's why I'm not paid to to con- to give those answers and everything, but it's certainly your book comes at a really good time because th- as we move into this totally interconnected globally internet world that we have now officially gone into, but it gets more and more iterated over time. You know, th- these are questions that we got to ask. And these are, these are things that people got to become aware of because when, when things like money and, and, your footprint, your digital footprint became become the center of your ability to be a citizen in the world. That's where shit can get real scary. So I, I like the I like the pathway you're on here, but again, you've kind of been on this since the beginning almost. Like you were at the earliest stages of this and you're you're growing with it and your stories are growing with it. And so as I've always said, I I recommend your books heavily. You have what is it, three now? Yeah, this is the third one. This is yeah. the third one. And this one's called Tracers in the Dark, once again. You can hit that link in the description to get it off Amazon. Highly recommend. I'm like two-thirds of the way through it. I think it's phenomenal so far. But your last one we talked about in our last podcast, number 99, that's Sandworm. Talked a bunch about that. What was the name of the first one about Julian Assange and the cypherpunks again? Yeah, it was called This Machine Kills Secrets, which was like a reference to WikiLeaks, really, which was sort of like another thing that came out of the cypherpunks. But then in the midst of that book, I came across cryptocurrency, and I've wanted to write a book about it ever since i just didn't ever expect it would be this story but it did and we talked about that one a bunch as well on the last podcast so again i'd really recommend that but listen thank you so much for coming back down here to do this did a great job this this story is awesome again i highly recommend it and i'm looking forward to seeing where the where the reporting takes you next well it's always a great conversation i really appreciate it julian of course all right everybody else you know what it is give me give it a thought get back to me peace